So we will start our meeting. If you will please join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you, everyone, for joining us this evening. We will move to B1, Superintendent's Report, Dr. Henson. Thank you, Mrs. Goodburn. Let's start tonight with the smart steering wheel. There we go. Students at Rose Hill Elementary are regional winners in Explora Vision, the largest STEM competition in the world. It's sponsored by Toshiba. The Rose Hill students develop plans for smart steering wheel that is designed to make driving safer. This innovative design uses electronic sensors to alert a driver to a variety of things, like, for example, if they get drowsy. It also has an alert button connected to GPS in case of emergency. The students involved that you can see there are Owen Coleman, Elena Danbury, Noah Barnes, and Victoria Olberding. Brandy Leggett served as their coach, and Dr. Doug Sumner served as mentor. As regional winners, they'll develop a website, video, and prototype to compete in the national competition. And if they win nationals, along with their families, they will receive an all-expenses-paid trip to Washington, D.C. The students received a hard drive as a reward for their, re for their work, and Rose Hill received a computer from Toshiba. So congratulations <coughs> excuse me, to the students from Rose Hill. The Dolphin Tail Prosthetic. You ready? Fifth grade students in Mrs. Overton's class at Sunflower Elementary recently read the book Winter's Tale, a story about a baby dolphin who lost her tail by becoming caught in a crab trap. She was rushed to Clearwater Marine Aquarium. Winter survived, but her tail eventually fell off. Then she received a prosthetic tail and learned to swim again. Now she is thriving and is an inspiration to all, especially to children who are amputees. Pause on that note. Fifth grade students were touched by this story. They all designed prosthetic tails to their own for Winter the Dolphin. Mrs. Overton contacted Kevin Carroll, the expert at Hanger Prosthetics Clinic here in Kansas City. The people at Hanger made a special trip to visit the students, and they brought one of Winter's actual prosthetic tails. They also FaceTimed with Kevin Carroll, who answered the children's questions and then complimented them for their work. The map shows the social media conversation that took place across the United States about this project. As you can see from this map, it shows how powerful and far our impact is when we inspire kids and their passion is allowed to fuel a project. The posts from out of state are from Clearwater Marine Aquarium in Florida and Toshiba headquarters. Mr. Douglas is going to come at this time to share some information in relation to student safety. Mr. Douglas, thanks for joining us this evening. President, Dr. Henson, Dr. Southwick, members of a board, question has come up, uh, considerable concern has been expressed over what would happen if immigration officials were to um, want to enforce immigration laws in the school. In fact, there was a reported article that erroneously reported that one of our students had been taken out of a classroom uh, for deportation purposes. I can assure you that, number one, no ICE member or any agent from ICE has been on our campuses for any such purposes. I can tell you that no student was taken out of school uh, for any of those kinds of purposes and would not be based upon our policy. 
The follow-up to that article was that some school districts are writing special resolutions that do several things. Uh, the question came to us as to whether or not we were looking at such a policy, and the truth of the matter is we already have such a policy that prohibits actions and activities as described. Um, let me start off by saying there are five reasons why a student can be taken out of school as a law enforcement action. The first one is a probable cause arrest. That is fairly rare, but it would be the kind of situation where that student is creating a threat to the members of the school or to the staff. Primarily it's used, it has been used by us when we had a reported threat, uh, threat made to the school uh, that most often occurred with a lockdown. Somebody that threatened to do something to the school or to other individuals in the school. It is very rare. Arrest warrants, which the other um, so the other policies said okay, they can't come without an arrest warrant. Arrest warrants really pertain to those individuals who are over the age of 18. Uh, juvenile cases are handled differently, but in this case it would be if a person had an arrest warrant, but even then it would have to be something very, very significant. A minor arrest warrant would not be sufficient, and we would ask and require the law enforcement agency to make their arrest outside of school time because of a disruptive nature to the learning environment. Uh, a pickup and detain order is similar to an arrest order, and that is also granted by a legal authority uh, for juveniles. But the same thing would pertain. We would not be picking up juveniles unless there was a, a threat to someone in the school or a threat to themselves. So that was very rare. The most reasonable and the most likely way is a child in need of care. And that occurs when the child is in a position not to be able to take care of themselves. Uh, it has occurred when the child was so out of control that the parents were not available to pick them up that they were taken into protective custody until the parents could pick them up. It has also taken place when the parents were not able to pick them up. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. If a child was virtually stranded because his parents were in an wreck, for example, and were incapable of coming to pick them up. We would use the child in need of care statute. If, in fact, a child was stranded because his parents were arrested, and we've had both of those things happen several times this year, if both of his parents were, because of their circumstances, unable to pick the child up, then we would make them a child in need of care and place them in protective custody until the parents were able to pick them up as opposed to simply turn them loose and go. And the final one, and all of these are codified by statute, is a runaway from another state, and I have never seen this. Uh, I suppose it's possible that we'll get a runaway who runs away from some other school and comes here and checks themselves in, but I doubt it seriously, and, and why it's in the state law, I don't know, but it is one of the five that is codified to be able to do that. So the question came up, are we going to specifically have a policy to deal with ICE agents. And the truth is, we have a policy to deal with all agents. There's no need to specifically address ICE because it addresses every single law enforcement officer or agent that would come up here and make contact. But since the question has come up, we also did some additional research. I contacted the district attorney's office and uh, talked to Mr. Howe. And we also discovered a memorandum from the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement dated October 24, 2011. In that, it directs their agents not to make arrests 
in sensitive areas. And I'll read from that if you'll, uh, if you'll allow me to. This policy is designed to ensure that these enforcement actions do not occur at or near focused sensitive locations such as school and churches unless, and it gives some very specific in, uh, instances where it can, and those include if it involves terrorism, if it involves threats, if it, you have to take immediate action to, to avoid a terrorist incident, or <coughs> so evidence isn't destroyed none of which would pertain to our children. Talking through Mr. Howe, we talked with the uh, Homeland Security folks to verify that this is still their policy, and it is still their policy. And if that would change, we would know and we would notify you. So long story short, we believe that we have already in place everything that is contained in any other resolution. Um, the other things that you do see in these national resolutions are that they have to identify themselves, that they have to have a legal authority to be there, that the parents have an opportunity to come up, and that uh, we have the opportunity to talk to counsel before the <coughs> child is released. All of those are contained in our current policies as well. So I think we've done exactly what everyone else is doing. I think we have covered it. I've, I can certainly understand why people would be concerned. Um, we don't want anyone interrupting the educational environment. But in my professional opinion, we have achieved um, what others have, have sought to achieve as well. I'd have any questions you might have. Mr. Strachan. Our district sits in quite a few city jurisdictions. Is there a way that we can make sure that all the cities also understand that too, just to make sure all the municipalities are on the same page? Well, we actually have a, a mechanism for that. Um, our principals are instructed that if an agent from any jurisdiction comes there wanting to, to contact or deal with our children, that my office is notified. So I'm a common denominator uh, and have the ability to stop in place and, and bring a, about our policy and, and go forward. And I can assure you that we're not going to let anyone, law enforcement, others, uh, disrupt the activities of that child without a very substantial legal and emergency reason to do so. Um, I can't tell you that in every instance, anytime, anywhere, any place, that there may not be a legal and, and perfectly logical reason to um, take a child into custody. I can tell you we're not going to send uniformed and non-uniformed officers into a schoolroom to take that child out. Um, we haven't done that, and we don't intend to do that. Ms. Neighbor. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> Is there a difference, and I know in the legislature there is, a resolution really doesn't carry any legal power. It's a statement made by the group, but it does not have to be observed. Instead of a policy which does carry that authority, is that the same in this situation? Well, I'm not sure about that. I think that the thing to remember is we have multiple layers of government. And they are not necessarily uh, one more significant than another. They work in a, in, they, they work in a continuity. Uh, I can tell you that um, the best way government works is when all of these layers work together and work in harmony. Um, is it totally possible? The question has been asked of me, if a federal government were to decide to come in, could we absolutely stop them? You know, that's going to be a question that would have to be resolved at that point in time. 
and there would be a lot of things that go in that direction. A school board, um, I'm not sure, but a school board policy would certainly take precedence over a federal statute. I doubt it most in most instances, but it doesn't have to get to that point. There, these are things that are worked out in advance and relationships that are developed. And talking to ICE um, through Mr. Howe, there was no desire whatsoever to, to try to do that. And I can tell you that I have not ever seen that happen in the entire time I've been here, nor as a chief of police. Um, what happens in the future, I don't know. I can tell you that the sanctity of the educational experience for our children is something that we would fight for, uh, using every legal means we have in our, in our ability to do so. And Mr. Douglas, if I'm correct, Senate Bill 367, that determines child in need of care. So that's the statute that all agencies would have to follow, yes, correct? Yes, that is correct. And it, it defines very specifically what child in need of care is and how that would function and go forward. But the board's policy has been in effect for a long period of time, directing exactly how we cooperate with other agencies in being able to carry out the legal functions that are there. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. So a question for us outside of Mr. Douglas's um, presentation. So we have the legal parameters. But when you have students that have concern, what's the best way outside of the legal parameters and the law enforcement requirements? What's our best course of action or what role can we play in relation to dealing with students that might have concerns? Um, that's really the question um, that we're discussing. We've been dealing with those issues on an individual basis. Um, I think that's a challenge in, in the environment in which we live today. Questions on that issue? Lost my notes. We'll go back there. Okay, um, early childhood update. We are expanding our early childhood program to ensure our youngest students have the best possible start. Next year, pre-kindergarten programs will be offered at 14 sites. These 14 sites are free for parents with qualifications. There will be tuition-based programs also available. An early childhood enrollment day will take place in the district on April 14, where families will be able to walk into schools and enroll in our early childhood education programs. So I want to emphasize that April 14, that early childhood enrollment day. We're looking at a technology update. Mr. Lane, I'm going to ask you to come and uh, give the board uh, an update on what we're talking about in relation to a refresh, if you will. Certainly. Thank you, Dr. Henson. <clears throat> Uh, several members of different departments have been looking at, uh, at capital outlay in a number of different ways, and one of those ways is how it impacts uh, technology in the district. And so what we were looking to do was to develop a sustainable plan for expenditures, capital outlay expenditures for technology in the district, while still building on the successes that our teachers and students have had with, uh, with the one-to-one -one initiative we have, the digital learning initiative and also making sure that we uh, take into account the other technology needs the district has. So things like um, Russell Knapp gave a, a presentation earlier this evening about the new Business Plus and making sure that his team has the technology they need to get their jobs done and those types of things. 
we've looked at several different factors, and, and one of the things we're looking at is the life cycle of the technology itself, but also uh, the technology that we've implemented has residual value, and that residual value is something we can capitalize on when we enter into an additional purchase. And so we're looking at timing, not only just, you know, when is the hardware due or when would it be ready for refresh, but when would be a, a financially responsible time to do that as well. And there, there, are, there are quite a few scenarios out there, but the one we like the most would be, uh, you know, a, a sooner rather than later approach. By doing it uh, sooner, we can potentially head off an additional uh, $1 million expenditure that we might have to absorb if we waited an additional year. This, this strategy also allows us to set up kind of a stable, predictable, sustainable capital outlay expenditure plan for technology in the district. Rather than waiting and refreshing everything all at once, this sets up a strategy of kind of a three, four, and five-year rolling refresh for different components, different tech technology components in the district. Those things like iPads that uh, tend to have the highest residual value at the end of three years would be on a three-year cycle. The other one-to-one -one devices that tend to have a higher residual value at the end of four years, they would be on a four-year cycle. And then pretty much all the remaining stuff in, in labs and those types of things that don't quite, they don't see some of the same wear and tear that a one-to-one -one device does, they would be uh, valid for ab about five years. The idea here is, is to uh, just kind of bounce, bounce this around. Uh, we're not asking for any sort of action this evening, just kind of give you an idea of what we're thinking. And then in April, we'll bring back a more comprehensive look at this. You know, what, what would it look like? What does that three, four, and five-year plan look like? What would the expenditure look like at those different times? Um, what kind of residual value are we looking at if we did that now versus if we didn't do it now? And some examples of those successes I mentioned earlier. And so that would be what I would bring back to the board in April. Thank you, Mr. Lane. Certainly. Dr. Kinsley, yes, ma'am. Question on the previous early childhood. Are those 14 sites trying to let their neighborhoods know? Yes, ma'am. They're trying to communicate in that regard as well. Thank you. <clears throat> Opening of Crestview, we have a few pictures to show you. Our teams worked very hard over spring break to get the school ready for the students' first day, which was on the 21st. Uh, it was a very smooth move-in process. Uh, we were scrambling certainly behind the scenes, but it was a smooth uh, move-in process. Uh, the looks on the kids' faces, um, also the looks on the uh, teachers' faces, Dr. Southwick and I were there to observe that process. Uh, the building is uh, certainly colorful, cheerful, different. So remember the old Crestview, and they've been at Arrowhead, and now the new building. And so uh, new buildings create a lot of excitement, so we're very pleased with the process uh, that took place at Crestview and the move-in there. And so it's been our, as you know, our third move in over the last couple of months into new elementary schools, certainly an exciting time. Speaking of school construction, Dr. Southwick. A little bit of a construction update. Um, Dr. Henson stole a little bit of my thunder, but he only showed inside pictures. So we've got a nice picture of the outside of the new Crestview Elementary School. Uh, we do um, dedicate that building tomorrow night as our uh, third new building this year. Uh, reminder, we open up Benninghoven, and that process is uh, moving along. We'll be ready to open up in um, August with that building. This building's rich in color, uh, great spaces, not only in the classroom but in the hallway for movement. Um, it has great sustainability. Uh, Great opportunity to, to observe. You can actually stand in the middle of this building up by the office and you can see down every corridor. It's designed that way. Um, 
So we're very excited about it. I always throw in two plugs when I talk about new buildings that we open. First is to thank our patrons who supported us at an 83% clip for us to be able to build these new buildings for our students. So as we deliver those, we always want to reflect back and thank people for that. And the other is, is that I can't say enough about the, the patience and the cooperation that we had from families, from our staff and our students as we move them out of one building so it can be torn down into a small building um, with challenges, but uh, they make it work. And 18 months later to be able to pick up and move again, and we understand that takes a lot of effort and a lot of work, and we always uh, try to thank them for that. So we're proud of this new school. Uh, we have three more to deliver. Um, we're in the design phases for Brookwood and for Lenexa Hills. And uh, we have, again, Benning Hoven that we open up in August. So it continues to be exciting time for us there. So um, in addition to that, the new Center for Academic Achievement, we actually have moved technology in to the building. Last week, uh, Drew Lane's staff moved into, I think it's Section D of the building. We're actually operating our technology out of the site right now um, as we speak. Uh, a little bit of accolades to Drew's staff moving that operation from Indian Creek to the new Center for Academic Achievement in a five-day period of time, and we were actually down six hours over that whole time. So um, we give them thanks. Uh, we're excited about our move-in. We'll start um, moving uh, the administrative support people uh, and administration into this building starting next week, and that will phase in over the entire month of April. Um, we're also excited to um, bring on our students in August. Uh, we figure that we will have somewhere, I think the number was five to 600 students that will be in this building uh, throughout the course of the year for our signature programs. This is a building that really serves three great functions in our community. We bring all of our administrative staff together in a little bit less than a third of the building. It'll be great space for us to meet and train across the district, but also will be for community use. Uh, I think we figured that our largest group can be about 250 people, and the smallest group could be two. Um, so we can serve about anything in between. And then, of course, the most important part of the building is that it serves as a school for our signature programs, where the door now opens up for all of our students to continue to attend their home high school but come to a signature program, um, receive that quality education, but still um, be tied back to their home school. So I think it provides great opportunity for us as we move. So um, don't expect any uh, groundbreaking or any celebration that we'll have in this building until August because we want to save that for our students. And we'll move in and, and it'll be our work is normal. I did hear from Russ that we're not moving payroll over until after everybody's been paid this month, which I think is a good move on our part. That's important. Um, but uh, we believe, um, Mr. Robinson, I'll put you on the spot. We believe this could be our last board meeting in McEachin, that the April board meeting, if things go well, I hate to make a, a solid prediction, but if things go well, our next board meeting will be at the Center for Academic Achievement. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
Thank you, Mrs. Goodburn. Okay. <coughs> okay. So we have special presentations. Um, Dr. Dr. Neal and Dr. Ziegler are going to join us first under special presentations to give us an update tonight on uh, some of the things that they're working on in the school district. the opportunity to come back and share a little bit about the work and progress that we're making uh, on two significant areas for us and that is character and culture development in our district so I had the opportunity to come and speak to the board a few months back and just give an update on character education as you know we had a task force that met through last year and had some outcomes of the task force <coughs> so work is underway for the curriculum development that we are on schedule for completion and then implementation when our students come back in the fall of 2017. As a reminder, there were three character traits that were identified by that task force group. That was to focus on universally across our district, respect, responsible, and resilience in our kids. But also as our curriculum teams have begun working, they've been analyzing the Kansas social, emotional, and character development standards which will play a big role also as we move into the new KISA, the Educational Systems Accreditation Model, in the year ahead as a district. So all of these pieces come together and are important for us to entertain. So as we look at those social-emotional character development standards, uh, the grade-level curriculum mapping teams that are coming in are looking at those standards and aligning those into areas across the curriculum. Um, some of the work groups that have begun have started with our specialist teachers at the elementary level our PE teachers, our art and music, and have really started dissecting those standards and found great connections into the work that we do with kids. PE in particular, where we're talking about sportsmanship, we talk a lot about character traits throughout the work that we do and interaction with each other and the responsibility that we all have in ourself and our behaviors. So that work is underway and we are on target for uh, rolling that out with integration in the fall when our students come back. Additional traits that have been identified as we unpack those standards at the state and start to look at alignment include safe, caring, self-control, honesty, integrity, cooperation, and courage. So that's where we're at, making good progress on character education and alignment in our curriculum. We're going to come back to upper levels in just a moment. Um, but we want to also highlight some of the work that we've continued to do engaging Sue Ellen Freed. So we've had the opportunity, um, some of you may know Sue Ellen, uh, she has um, a really a long decades worth of work um, in the area. She began uh, working around issues of child abuse and then moved uh, her work into issues around bullying. And so a few months ago we had the opportunity in our district to begin dialoguing with her um, on some of her research and work and you mentioned how sometimes things come together and there's kind of a convergence and so as we were talking with her we recognized that that really fit in with many of the things that we're doing around social emotional and character development work and so uh, Sue Ellen 
um, met with a variety of district um, staff members, and then in January we had the opportunity for her to meet with our um, area council PTA, and then timing happened to be great and that she was able to come and work with our PTA presidents and principals <coughs> together to talk about um, her work and about the work that we want to do together um, to better understand one another and how we frame, um, you know, the way that we interact and relate. And really, I think the crux of her presentation was around the idea that relationships really matter and are really important, and also the opportunity for um, conversation and a common vocabulary that we can all use um, with one another is very powerful. She would have been here this evening, but she and her husband are actually um, out of town. So she sends her regrets, and I'm sorry she's not here, because she did a marvelous job of explaining these kind of concentric circles here. Um, schools, as you see, are right in the middle. And she explains this almost like a sandwich. So schools, as we are looking at, our, our focus initially is on our individual student and identifying their needs, meeting them where they come in, developing those relationships with the students, and, um, and helping them to meet their needs. But our families also have a variety of needs and those influences that they bring with their students. Then we have the school, okay, as the system trying to address many of those needs. Then we also have the outside community and beyond that, the overall greater culture beyond just our local communities. And those bring with them needs, expectations, and all of those forces coming at the school. The school's really sandwiched in the middle. And so the school, she does a great job of talking about, um, as she's worked with multiple schools in a variety of settings, the challenges that she sees facing schools and that we can't do it alone. And so I think that was really the power of the meeting that, and conversation that she had with our parents, talking with them about how important our PTA is as a network to that greater community, that we all really need to come together to work on these issues that impact not only schools and children and students, but more greater at the societal level as well. And so we'll come back to that in another area of topic that we'll share in just a moment. Another area that we wanted to provide an update on is Green Dot. So uh, I believe you heard uh, towards the beginning of the year about the Green Dot project. Um, John Douglas and I had the opportunity to take a meeting uh, last spring with a group that's uh, a partner in our community, MOXA. So that's the Metropolitan Organization to Counter Sexual Assault. At that point, MOXA was uh, in a position to write for a grant that would bring a Green Dot curriculum at the middle school level. Green Dot is a program um, that basically talks about um, violence prevention, and it started as a developed program for university campuses, and there is a large number of campuses across the United States over years that have implemented the program successfully. So the idea behind the Green Dot is when acts of violence or, or bad things or victimization happen, you usually see a red dot on a map. We see that in the news. We see a red dot representing crime or, or any other such uh, act. So the idea is in a prevention program to teach students, adults, community members, how do you replace that green or that red dot with a green dot? So green dot was then written at the high school level into a program and most recently came out with a program uh, for middle school. So the grant was successful and we were able to be a pilot partner for the organization at two of our middle schools this year. 
Just this last week, I was able to see some of the feedback that came from student climate and culture sur surveys that were part of rolling this out in our schools. And what's exciting for me is our schools that are participating are seeing immediate responses from their own students about how students are seeing each other, how they are treating each other, and you see more instances of respect as one of the points of the needle that's moving in the right direction. Um, also aside, when I say violence prevention at the middle level, um, let me tell you what that means for our kids. When asked that question, the most frequent act of violence that they identify is name calling. So I just want to put that out there that that's part of what was reported back to, to us. And they're seeing that respect is growing through this. I have a quick video that I will share with you that gives you just an overview. It's one minute, about a minute 20. Outside the home, your child spends most of their time in school. A program has been created that reduced violence in schools by almost 50%. It's called Green Dot. Green Dye is a violence prevention program focused on culture change. We want to create a culture that says violence has no place in our school. Without realizing it, we may see violence in schools as normal, but it doesn't have to be. We are all a part of our culture, so we should all be a part of the change. If you visualize a map of your school, imagine a red dot for every moment in time when someone makes a choice to hurt someone. The worst part about red dots is they spread. Now imagine that same map with a green dot for every moment in time when someone makes a choice to help someone. The best part about green dots is they spread. Whether we are a student, teacher, or parent, we all make these choices every day. So how do we make more green dots? All you have to do is remember D-O-T. Do something yourself. Remind people it's not okay to hurt others. Others can help. Ask a trusted adult or an outgoing friend. Talk about something else. Change the situation by changing the subject. It sounds simple, but we know it's not always easy. The key is, when everyone plays their part and makes more green dots, the green dots will spread and the culture will change. The power is in us, all of us. More green dots than red means less students are hurt, period. So I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to be a part of a panel presentation and I met a gentleman who is a president of one of our um, universities and he had a green dot on his lapel. And through the course of conversation, he asked me if I knew what the Green Dot was. And so it is out there. It is a program that's well established in their university system, the whole university. It's part of their student induction program coming in. Every student at the university receives this program. Um, it is evidence-based. There's uh, longitudinal data on it, and they are consistently seeing 50% reduction um, immediately with the program. So this has brought about 32 hours of training in for our teachers that are participating as the lead trainers in the school. And we're excited again to see uh, the data as we enter the end of the year and see what comes next for further work. So that is Green Dot. So I mentioned earlier about Sue Ellen Freed. She also met with, um, and that goes along with, a little bit with everyone can play their part. She also met with some with our social workers, and so um, next year, in addition to the character development work, we'll also be looking at rolling out um, some additional training and work with our schools around um, these important issues. Um, another group um, that has come together, a grassroots group called United. Uh, which stands for Understanding the Necessity of Intentional Training for Empathy and Diversity. And I'd like to recognize we have two people in the audience that we have had the um, good fortune to work with on this, uh, Linda Seek and Liz Meidel. Um, if you'll wave. So they, along with um, teacher leaders in our schools, district leaders, and other community members, have come together um, to work with staff members. 
Um, and the, really the crux of their work is looking at creating safe and inclusive schools for all of our students and staff. And so the first thing that they started with was uh, we kicked it off with the Great Kindness Challenge back in January, and that was terrific. If any of you followed social media around the hashtag, um, it was just every day was uplifting. You saw our schools, our students, our teachers, parents at home, community members um, who took part in um, just doing simple acts of kindness, um, writing skits around <coughs> kindness, doing things for one another. It was just a tremendous great effort and um, full of a lot of excitement. But their work, of course, doesn't start there. That was really just merely their kickoff. And so they've been meeting and working on how on developing um, some building level professional development. And um, they will have an opportunity to do that uh, on April 14th. And so we look forward to, um, we'll be meeting with them and look forward to, they'll be sharing with the principals and building leaders and we'll continue that work around identifying, you mentioned Kisa earlier, a part of um, that is around responsive culture. So identifying at the building level, what are things that they, um, that they need, to, that they want to work on and then developing some of that professional development around that. Say the other piece that this is bringing is additional community resources and helping our teachers understand what resources are available in the community and what resources we already have in place as the district, but knowing where to go when you have questions or when you have identified a need at the building level for additional support. Trauma-sensitive schools and resilient learners. So Dr. Franklin, uh, we know, did some work with us last spring as an administrative team and spoke about his work in other school districts around um, developing resilience in learners. We know that every child comes with a story. Every one of us has a story. And some of those stories um, come with um, tales of uh, adversity, and uh, some of them have been a little bit more difficult to overcome for our kids. So what Dr. Franklin's continuing to do is help us understand and how to develop relationships and understand the needs diverse needs of our learners in schools. So at this point, um, I wanted to share with you, I, I found a tweet from one of our teachers, and this was one of the first schools, um, it was Broken Arrow, that Dr. Franklin went in and began working with last spring. But his work has continued, and just on our last professional learning day, he met with um, the elementary schools that are in one of our, um, our Shawnee Mission feeder patterns. But at this point, he's touched uh, schools across our district at both the elementary the secondary level. Um, there were five schools that came together and met at Trailwood at the last instance, but many of these uh, opportunities have been brought together by our feeder system schools getting together and wanting to work with him as a group and coming together and collaborating. So um, we've accomplished much as we started out thinking, how are we going to do this? We have one Dr. Franklin, and he's amazing, um, but the work that he has done has been tremendous, and I wanted you to know it has continued and it is making a difference for kids. <laughs> Dr. Franklin also brought to us a successful endeavor in developing through Kauffman Foundation funds and Kansas State University, the Kansas State College Advising Corps. As you recall, that's providing additional resources at Shawnee Mission North, Shawnee Mission South, Shawnee, Shawnee Mission West. So there is a College Advising Corps counselor that is in each of those schools and several other schools in the metro um, that are working to provide additional pathways to our uh, students to reach college if that is their goal and helping them see that as a goal. Um, we recently had the opportunity to take part in the Casey Scholars Program. 
So this is a spinoff of the Kauffman Foundation Scholars, which, as you may be aware, provided scholarship funding over multiple years uh, for learners in other areas of the metro, but was not previously available to learners um, in our district. So Casey Scholars is the expansion of that project. The Kauffman Foundation is investing about $79 million over the next decade to fund scholarship opportunities that are tremendous for kids. So I just want to report initially, the first round of scholarship applications were due on March 1st, and Dr. Franklin just emailed me over the weekend that two of our high schools are in the top seven of the metro for the highest number of scholarship applications submitted. Two of our high schools, uh, Shawnee Mission North and Shawnee Mission West, each had 46 applications submitted that met their criteria. So those are under review now. But what this could mean to our kids is up to, up to $10,000 per year in scholarships that could be renewed over numerous years, up to five years. There are other opportunities through this program for adult learners that um, families in our district that maybe started college and then separated that we'll continue to promote and get the word out on, but I think that's a tremendous success, an initial uh, measure of what's happening with that Kansas State uh, Advising Corps. And again, good work for our kids, impacting our culture pathways to the future. That concludes our quick update on character and culture. I do have one question. Um, the pilot that's in the two middle schools. So what's the plan for continuing? I know it was a grant that MOXA received. Um, so what's the, hopefully we can continue? We just have to have yeah. another touch point and see what their plans are for expansion and um, understand if that isn't a possibility, what else we can do as a district to make that happen. Okay. So more on that this spring. Good. Similar question on the Kansas State College Advising Corps. Is that going to be um, expanded to our other high schools? That is a great question, and I would have to defer that to Dr. Franklin. I will have to check on that and get back with you. Thank you. But we will have a touch point. He told me that a final data review will come in May. Those are great results coming out of that program. Thank you. Anybody else have any questions? Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, next up. We're going to switch to an entirely different subject, school district attendance boundaries. So Dr. Southwick and Dr. Hubbard, as we switch over there, would you give us an update, please? Just want to brief the board a little bit about where we are. Um, I'm going to reflect back to one of my first board meetings in 14 when, and it was the summer of 14, when the board was considering a, a minor boundary change and every year we've talked about boundary changes uh, we put boundary changes off um, as long as we possibly could and there's some reason for that we understand that it's it's an issue that people are very passionate about and they're emotional about and um, we understand when we make boundary changes that there are issues um, some are inconvenience and some are, again, are just emotional issues that we cause parents, staff members. But it is something that we have to do if we're going to balance our schools around not only the number of students but the needs of the students that we have in the buildings. Um, I always say it's one of those things that in a perfect world we wouldn't have boundary changes. Um, but we're not in a perfect world. I also always try to say that it's okay to dread these boundary changes but it's not okay to avoid them. Um, so uh, at our last meeting, the, uh, Dr. Hubbard was here and presented some information to the board. 
That was as a result of work that had been done over the last several months, looking at not only numbers of students and transitioning them through the months, but also reaching out to um, all of our entities, our cities, trying to look where developments are, trying to plan where houses are selling, where neighborhoods are regreening, and pulling together as much of that information as we can. So um, Dr. Hubbard and I are back tonight to uh, talk a little bit more about the next phase of this and what it will look like. And I want to, on your agenda, make sure that you see and, and people in the audience and people that might watch us tonight on TV that these, uh, the presentation tonight is on boundary considerations. That this is a fluid process and will be until there's a presentation that's made to the board asking you to make those final considerations. As we've looked over what the next steps of the process will be, I believe that about a 30 to 40 page presentation went live on Friday to our community to be able to look at those things that we're considering and what the factors are and what uh, potential recommendations might be. And this is based on our work. Uh, we will leave tonight and we have two evenings scheduled, one in April and one in May, where we'll invite the community members that have concerns or considerations, opportunity to provide input to us, uh, and we will value all of that. That's our commitment to you. Um, I believe those dates are April the 11th and May the 3rd, and we'll do those regionally in the district in the areas that will be impacted. So we'll be there that evening. Uh, we'll be able to present information. Uh, we want to know what people are thinking. We want. Um, the, their ideas, we, we potentially could have missed some things. And that's why I'm telling you tonight that what we're showing are considerations and what's out there are considerations. And there's no way that we'll make a recommendation to you until we've sought that input, we've listened, and then put together our, our uh, final concepts. Some things that we've looked at, not only the numbers of buildings, but we're trying to look at what's happening on the west side of I-35. As you know, we have a new school in Exa Hills that we'll be building. Um, but the impact of these boundary changes um, aren't just around that area. It really is an impact of everything that goes on in our community, whether that's regreening, it's, um, it is new students that are moving to the area, it's the numbers of, of new doorways that we know are being planned by the city. We are actually on the phone. Um, as late as last night with one of our cities going over uh, the planning that had been taken place so that we can do the best work that we can. Um, but again, it's a, it's a rather large area. It does encompass a lot of schools that have been identified. We've tried to minimize those changes as much as we can. But uh, before I ask Dr. Hubbard to come forward, I, I give her credit for a lot of work that she's done. Um, but we, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done before we'll come to you with a recommendation. So, uh, again, these are considerations, and I want to emphasize that. Uh, and we will not have final recommendations until we've had an opportunity to have community input. So, Dr. Hubbard? So the, the proposal is set up by schools and how they are impacted throughout the process, but oftentimes one school will impact another, and so we set it, we, cho we chose to set it up by actual schools, so you can see the impact to that school as we speak about it. I'm not gonna talk about the um, rationale, as Dr. Southwick just did that, 
Um, the first part of the proposal is how the elementary boundaries look right now in 1617. And then these are the schools that um, this proposal addresses specifically. Broken Arrow, McCullough, Lenexa Hills, Mill Creek, Ryan Benninghoven, Rising Star, Shawano, Sunflower on the west side, and then on the east side, East Antioch and Overland Park. So I'm going to start with Broken Arrow. There's a small area of Broken Arrow that you will see um, down on the bottom corner of the map. That is Red Oak Hills Subdivision. And that the proposal is to move Red Oak Hills Subdivision to the new Lenexa Elementary. As you can see here, the school would go from 439 to 417. I may have to get my glasses out. <laughs> um, and one thing that we have noted at the bottom is that there's a district level special education program that would be expanding in, the, in that particular building and this would allow room for that. Krista McAuliffe, there are two impacts to Krista McAuliffe. They will be gaining um, in this proposal several students from Ryan Benninghoven and then um, leaving McAuliffe to the new Lenexa Hills would be um, Forest Park Estates just off of Brenner Road would go to the new Lenexa Hills. Um, their numbers would go from 394 to 451 in this proposal. Again, these are all estimates on numbers. And there is a picture of the new map as you can see what Kristen McCullough would look like there. East Antioch, um, the east side, um, is a small portion <coughs> that would uh, crosses over 75th Street. So we would stop that crossing from happening going from 380 to 341 also addresses overcrowding in East Antioch, and as you can see in the map there, um, the impact to East Antioch. Lenexa Hills Elementary, um, so really three major areas that impact here. All Sunflower students moving west of 435 from 103rd to Midland would move to the new Lenexa Hills. Broken Arrow students, again, as we just discussed with Red Oak Hills, would move to the new Lenexa Hills, and then the small part of McCullough that we just discussed would also move to Lenexa Hills. With that building opening at 197, we also plan to house a large uh, district-level special education program in that building until uh, at some point we probably need to adjust down the road as those doorways start to fill up that are under construction now. I believe we have an uh, estimate of 1,800 to 21 doorways west of I-35 between now and roughly December of 18. So lots of doorways to consider there. So there's the um, proposed boundary for Lenexa Hills. Mill Creek Elementary, um, again gaining from Ryan Benninghoven, as we discussed, and Shawano um, students west of 75th Street. Moving um, them from 374 to 464, and there's the Mill Creek boundary. Overland Park Elementary, we discussed this one already with East Antioch. It's just a trade of about 40 kids. Um, there is an impact here in regards to middle school. Currently, this group of kids goes to East Antioch, then they go to Hawker for middle school, and then back to West. It's the only area in the um, district that doesn't have a consistent feeder. So these kids would be Overland Park, uh, West Ridge, and then West to be a consistent feeder pattern now. Uh, moving them from 369 to 408, and again the boundary for Overland Park. Elementary. 
And we have Benninghoven on the west side. We're excited to open a new building, as Dr. Southwick mentioned earlier, uh, in August. So to make room in this building eventually, we would, um, and, and also to allow for pre-K services in this building, we would move kids to both McCulloch as well as a portion of kids to Mill Creek. Moving them from 567 to 467, and again would allow room for pre-K services to happen within that building. And there's the boundaries of Benningham. Rising Star Elementary is our largest elementary in the district. Um, in addition, have a pretty significant housing project for multifamily housing going in, so we had to account for that in this proposal. So moving the Meadows Apartments to Shawano, and then a small portion of their southern, southern boundary to Sunflower Elementary, taking them from 603 down to 484. And then there's their boundary. Shawano Elementary, again, uh, students living west of Quivera would go to Mill Creek, and then the students in the Meadows Apartments from Rising Star would go to Shawano, taking them from 500 to 510. And then there's the boundary for Shawano Elementary. Sunflower Elementary, um, two impacts here. Rose Hill students living west of I-35 would move. There is currently only one student in that particular area. And then students going from um, the Hunter and Theraton Midland to Lenexa Hills. So that's a, approximately 165 students. I just realized they also have it that should be mentioned here as a gain. They have a gain from Rising Star, um, that small portion of Rising Star. So I need to have that on here. Making them um, 530 to 417. And then here's the boundary for um, Sunflower Elementary. Picking up that large portion of Rose Hill. However, again, there's only one student in there. And most of that Rose Hill bottom boundary that you see there is industrial. And very few homes in that area. And then this is what the boundary map would look like after all of the changes, um, the proposed changes, if they were approved by the board. We do have two community meetings set, Tuesday, April the 11th. Shawnee Mission Northwest and Wednesday, May 3rd at Shawnee Mission West. Both of those scheduled from 6 to 7.30 where we'll be looking for input from the community. As well as um, there will be a web page that has this presentation on it so people can see that at any time that they would like. And we have set up a special email account for people to be able to email um, concerns or suggestions that they may have to want to add input. They can do that in this email. With that, I'll take any questions you may have. Questions, board members? Anybody? Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, next we have C3, a legislative update from Dr. Stuart Little. <coughs> you all are getting the, <coughs> the gamut of issues tonight. Um, hello, I'm happy to be here. Uh, members of the board, uh, Madam Chair, um, I'm going to give you a brief overview of what's going on in Topeka at this point. I'll be happy to answer any questions that you may have and just kind of let you know what's going on. Um, and I've kept you updated through uh, written reports and uh, with the superintendent and staff to be 
dealing with the, the variety of issues as they've been coming up and evaluating the bills that we've had this year. One of the nice things, uh, on the one hand, with uh, education issues rising to the top this year as a, as a policy discussion and financial discussion in the legislature, we've managed to avoid, after the last three or four years, dealing with some odd policy bills and those kind of things. And I used to have to come here and tell you about you all would shake your head sometimes to the things that had to be done what we had to deal with in Topeka, and that's not the case this year. We're pretty well focused. There aren't a lot of policy bills going on. Um, this is a, a time where there's a lot of uh, opportunity. Uh, I, I'm hopeful about what's going to come out of the school finance process. I think there are, uh, make no mistake about it, everybody up there is advocating for their interests, and that's something important to keep in mind for everybody, that there are a lot of folks up there with a lot of different perspectives, and it's going to take all of us to get something hammered out in the end. Um, there is uh, some financial reality that's going to come. Part of what I'll talk about is a bit about the process and where we are uh, in putting together a school finance bill. I have been in conversations with members of our legislative delegation, testified and written testimony on the school finance bill in the House Committee today, the long-standing districts, your opposition to the school finance formula, wanting to see changes. Over the course of last summer, when we had in fall, when we had meetings with members of our legislative delegation and going through the process, have been conveying the point of wanting to see changes in the school finance formula. That's what we're trying to do. The ultimate objective here, uh, been talking through a variety of changes, but most fundamentally, the issue has always been, I've represented you all for, I think, 14 years at this point, is that on a per-pupil basis, students in Shawnee Mission School District are funded usually in the bottom 10%. And what are the things that we can do to accomplish that? Number one, to increase funding on a per-pupil basis for students and for patrons and taxpayers, how do we get a good rate of return on how we fund a school finance system? And that's still what we're looking at. The formulas that we're going to deal with at this point have tailored themselves towards looking a lot like the old formula, and those are the ground, ground that we're working on at this point to talk about how to proceed in that way. Um, there are a uh, mainly the one bill we've got right now in the House K-12 through Education Committee is a bill that essentially makes no one happy, that everybody, we've gone through three days of hearings where everybody was neutral, there was one proponent, there were a variety of opponents, and it is a bill that and keep in mind as well, we didn't really have a bill and an active engagement in this until the Gannon decision came down from the Supreme Court, which finally, and I think frustratingly for a lot of people, prompted some legislative initiative on, on how to proceed. Uh, but that's, there's nothing we can do about it, that at this point. So this bill essentially, it creates, um, it increases the base, it reduces local funding, it Adds, it does not add funding for at-risk, which is one of the issues that came up with, with the Gannon decision. And it, it, so there are urban districts that are frustrated about not getting at-risk money. Rural districts are frustrated because coming out of the block grant where they were held, whole, where they were held harmless from declining enrollment, you kick back in a formula and they lose money, they're not happy. It has 
uh, less local option budget funding components, which doesn't make us happy. So it's something that doesn't make anybody happy at this point. So that's a, that, sometimes in Topeka that's a sign of success. But what's going to happen on that, in that committee, and that committee is, uh, uh, is, uh, is made up of a variety of very well-educated, in-tune people on school finance, and so that bill is going to get uh, eventually, and it's, it's a slow process, is going to get a lot of things put into it to fix it for a variety of different groups because, as I said, nobody's neutral up there. Everybody's advocating for their interests. Is going to get put together and probably pass out of committee and likely will pass the House. Um, what will be the surprise, I think, when this is all said and done is the price tag on that bill. Uh, right now, it costs $75 million. With every component that somebody wants added in, it's going to cost money. Uh, and to address those issues, there will be um, uh, issues that are going to be budget-driven. On the Senate side, uh, within the last couple of weeks, the Senate uh, created their school finance committee. It has begun to meet. It's been generally informational briefings. There is not a. Uh, there have not been discussions of, of putting together a school finance formula. And I will note that we are just about a week and a half away from the end of the regular session. So <clears throat> the legislature, when they adjourn on, on April 7th, will be back on May 1st and will start the veto session, which essentially, for all practical purposes, is a 60-day clock to get to the 30th of June when the legislature has to have a school finance formula before the, the Supreme Court. I believe it will take them almost all of that time to do that. Because the Senate's going to have work to do on putting together a bill. The House will likely have a bill. And I would note, and the reports I've sent you all, I've talked a bit about keeping in mind school finance is not separate from the rest of the, of the legislative <coughs> process, and in particular the budget and tax policy. We are, like I said, almost to the end next Friday, the end of the regular session. We do not have budgets passed either for the current year or for the next fiscal year. <coughs> Excuse me. We do not have revenue finished for the current fiscal year or for the next fiscal year. The House and the Senate budgets right now are somewhere. Uh, pessimists say they've, they're spinning into an $800 million hole on the Senate side. They're spinning a $500 million hole because of the budgets that they're working on. So none of those things are closed. None of those things are resolved. And so what we're talking about is raising that amount of money just to get to zero, just to get above zero. How are you going to fund things in a school finance formula? And so I think what is going to – where we're headed very likely is that the, the House is likely going to, just because of the dynamics of the House, the way they're operating now, the structure and organization of the body, we're going to probably have a very expansive and very expensive bill that comes out of the House – the Senate is likely going to have something that's going to be trimmed down, going to be cheaper at some point, and that's when we start negotiating. And what will be the real challenge will be we're not going to have a budget, we're not going to have a tax plan, and we're not going to have a school finance plan. And all three of those things are going to be in play during the veto session. Most likely, there, there could be something. We could finish the budget within the next week and a half. We could finish tax policy within the next week and a half. I don't. That may happen, but odds are against that. Uh, and so what will then happen will be we'll be having uh, – there will be uh, committee meetings and then eventually when bills pass both chambers, conference committees, negotiating out what should remain in that bill. 
And so I think going forward, when I submitted testimony on the bill today in the House, there are things that we liked in that bill. There are things that, that we would like to see in there uh, added to the bill. And, and, and I can, we've got the, the superintendent has the, the testimony and those kind of things, and I'm happy to talk through that. But there's going to be a lot of advocating to do, and uh, I will continue to focus on doing the things that I can to uh, to uh, ensure that we move up that chart on a per pupil basis because that's where everybody wants to be. And and uh, I'll be happy to answer any questions you might have, and may know more uh, that I'll continue to be updating you all at least in writing. I'm happy to come back at your convenience. I'd be happy to answer questions. Oh, sorry, Mr. Uh, the Senate created a special committee mm -hmm. to hear some of this process. Where are they? Are they waiting to hear bills that come over from the House? They're going to create their own. What do you sense there? They have been having briefings from various staff. The budget director for the state was in there talking about budgeting. It's kind of been a, a school finance 101, but <laughs> delving into some issues when they wanted to get into that. Um, I, I do not know right now whether they will have their own bill to work on or whether they'll wait for a bill to come over from the House of Representatives at some point. I suspect during the break there will be lots of conversation among the members of the, that committee about how they might want to proceed. And they with a month there between uh, and April, they may, likely may put something together, I think. Okay, thanks. Yep. Anybody else? Thank you, Dr. Thank, you. Thank you. Okay, we move to D1, which is open forum. I will remind everyone we have um, quite a few speakers tonight, so I'm going to um, give this um, brief summary of, of uh, what we do in open forum. So addressing the board during each regular business meeting, the Board of Education provides an open forum as an opportunity for public comment on school di district issues. Agendas are published in advance to notify the community of the topics under consideration. Patron comments are welcome. The board president will place a time limit per speaker on open, uh, open forum remarks. Since we do have a number of speakers tonight on a number of different topics, we are going, as we have done in the last, uh, this year, I will limit uh, each speaker to three minutes and will be um, very, um, um, we will... Are we going to use our new little thing? We, we, we've had this up here, but we haven't used it. But we're, we put it back into service. It still works. So we have this handy-dandy timer that Dr. Denny is going to, um, um, to attempt to punch. So please, um, we do have a number of speakers tonight. And so please try to, when, when your, it counts down to zero, please end your comments as soon as you can. That would be um, wonderful. Um, and if a group has comments, if you want to uh, have a spokesman or if you want to combine, if there's a couple members here, that's fine, too. Um, just have a spokesperson on, on your behalf and, uh, of that group. So we will get started. Uh, our first speaker, and I just went in order of how they were submitted to our board clerk. And so we have Isabella Benner. And please, when you come to the mic... Go ahead and give us your name and your address. That would be super. Okay. Uh, I'm Isabella Benner. My address is 7304 Halsey Street. Um, my, the problem that I would like to address tonight has to do with bullying. And I know we have another speaker here tonight um, about that specific topic. My, my story uh, kind of has to do with bullying on the administrative side. And I heard um, a speaker say earlier kind of about the disruption 
of education. And um, <laughs> my, my story uh, exemplifies that. Um, my junior year of high school, which was last year, I'm a senior, um, I'm also a uh, IB diploma candidate. Um, my junior year of high school, I um, had an incident where a student at the school that I used to attend um, made <laughs> threats to me of a violent kind um, pertaining to a sexual nature, which which is <laughs> very uh, unpleasant, especially um, in high school. Uh, and I what any normal person would do. I approached my parents. I approached the administration especially. Um, when I uh, was encountered with this, I had a meeting with Moxa, actually, which is a, a lovely kind of tie-in. Um, and I had a meeting with Moxa and the principal of my school, and my father was there. Um, I expressed to all of the people in that meeting that I was... I feared for my safety. I feared for my friend's safety. Um, I was told that uh, this person who made threats to me and my friends was not breaking any type of um, school policy, uh, which is <laughs> questionable. Um, and what I realized is <laughs> all of this that was going on was clearly... <sighs> The, the administration had a <laughs> a huge impact in my education because I was afraid to go to the bathroom on my own, and I was told to take a buddy. Um, it eventually led to me uprooting uh, out of my uh, junior year in high school, and I had to move schools. Um, not, not specifically uh, due to my kind of individual safety, but because of the uh, morals behind the decisions that were made based off of the administration. Um, and my uh, father is going to speak uh, here in a second, and he will kind of tie into that. And I don't want to use up all the time, so <laughs> that is good. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you. Oh, next we have Bo. Better. Okay. My name is Bo Benner. <clears throat> I am the father of the young lady that just spoke in front of here. And I'd like to provide a perspective of that of a father from the incident that you have heard from her. Now, the incident that I am going to speak of is independent than what she said or what she was speaking about. <clears throat> One of them by themselves was difficult enough for us to reconcile with maintaining our confidence in the administration. But this next one was just the straw that broke the camel's back. It started at homecoming with a bunch of girls collecting at our house, getting ready for the homecoming dance. And in the haze of the excitement of getting ready for the night, one of the girls left her dress at school. So as often is the case with kids these days, they don't drive. So my wife had to run to the school, grab the dress, and get back to the, get back to the house to help these kids get ready for the school. This is only, I bring this up only to illustrate that the girl was very excited about the the date. Fast forward three days later, that school has a strike party for a play that was going on. These same two kids were seen flirting and laughing with one another throughout the night. Later that evening, we found out that they had shared their first kiss. And then further later that evening, this girl, the same girl, was convinced that that kiss was sexual assault. 
The girl then convinced the administration that this kiss was sexual assault. In an act of inconsistency, the administration punished the boy and suspended him. Now, this was the final straw. This is what I lost all faith in the administration and moved my daughter from one school to the next. So I hope this story and the others you might hear tonight will illustrate some of the inconsistencies that may be apparent with the policies that are set forth here. I hope that you're able to take these into account and help protect our kids, make sure that their safety is, is paramount with these policies and perhaps readdress them. Thank you. Mr. Benner. Next, next we have Charles Teagan. Teagan? Sorry. I've said that right. Hi, my name is uh, Charlie Teagan. I live at 5524 West 81st Terrace. And uh, I want to start off with thanking you uh, uh, for giving me the opportunity to address the board. Um, really, this is just going to be a quick three-minute story. I'm going to try to put in eight years of our experience with uh, Shawnee Mission School District. Um, you know, our situation may be a little different, but it's, uh, I don't think it's uncommon. And I don't think it's something that should be overlooked. Uh, I have a daughter, Claire. She's 14, been in Shawnee Mission School District since first grade. She's now in eighth grade. And uh, she has special needs, and she's been a victim of bullying since first grade all the way through eighth grade. And so this story just kind of shows you what's happened and how the school has addressed it. Um, you know, I want to give you an analogy real quick. Claire, uh, when she was in fourth grade, third grade, she was more like a Labrador puppy uh, excited to meet somebody, not angry, very happy, a little overzealous, missing social clues. Kids start to pick up on that, and then they start to run away from her, start to tease her. She doesn't figure it out. Fourth grade, she comes home and says, I don't think people actually like me. Okay, And this is someone who's never had more than one friend, maybe one birthday party, one sleepover her whole life. And so it's, you know, so anyway... Um, You know, the fact that this has gone on for eight years, we stand back and we want to know why, what's going on. And you may not be aware of this story, you know, but, uh, you know, she's been bullied, touched, harassed, beaten twice, teased about her disability for eight years, and now she's attending her third school this year. She's had to switch schools eight times in the Shawnee Mission School District. Um, here's an interesting point, and I'm not bragging, but, you know, Claire's story has been featured on the front page Candace Star. Fox 4, 5, 9, 41. Total of nine times her story's been shared. Um, she's been on Fox Radio, Huffington Post, recent recipient of the Children's Mercy Youth Athlete Award of the Year for the community work she does. She started a non-for-profit. And what's interesting about all that is that the Shawnee Mission School District has never once approached us about this problem. We've always had to be the one to go forward with the school and talk about God, that clock is quick. Okay. I think that's a problem. Where has everybody been? Okay. I think that kind of sweeping under the rug. Um, my, my purpose of this whole thing is that we want to help. You know, we want to get involved. We want to do what we can. You know, and I think some of the areas that uh, our problem is mediation. The actual mediation between two kids or two parents. It's never happened but twice in eight years. And that was Claire with another student at one school. 
I've never met with one parent on the other side, ever. Okay, and uh, same thing with the kids. And um, I think that's a problem. I think you have all these programs and resources and stuff that's out there that, uh, you know, it gets utilized here and there, but not everywhere. Westridge is the new school. Been there two weeks. And um, they're doing a great job. Okay. And my last point is that we're losing about 4,000 kids a year to suicide related to in-school bullying. And I just want to kind of bring that to surface and let you uh, hear our story. Keep it in the front of your mind. Thank, Thank you. you. Next we have Claire. Hi, I'm Claire Tejan. Uh, I live at 5524 West 81st Terrace. And as my dad was saying, there's a huge problem. And I'm probably about to cry soon, so wait for that. Um, there's a huge problem, and I'm going to talk to my last incident because my last incident is not the best story. It's one of those that jail comes in line and you talk about it. So I've switched three schools in less than a month because of this incident. And so this incident caused with – I'm going to fast-forward it since the time is running out. So bottom line, I was beaten unconscious from behind – and she bashed my face in, and I had bruising all over my face and body, and no one was there, no one stopped me, screaming my head off, it was on camera, and guess who gets in trouble for it? Me. For being there, for, for being in the situation, and she just gets to get away with it. And I just think there's a huge problem with I've gotten in trouble for more than half of the kids that have bullied me over because I have over 30 kids that should be suspended for what they have done. And they've not. I've been the one who's been suspended for being there. So you need to take in consideration that you're, getting, you're putting the wrong child in trouble. And you need to start thinking... What is best for the child? I nearly tried to kill myself three times over this incident and over all, all of the other incidents. I'm just trying to say, you are killing kids by not listening. And this is making me so frustrated because I've dealt with most, I've dealt with more adults than parents. More adults than you guys, and you're the ones who need to listen most because you have the, all these rules that you're not putting in and they're just getting swept under the rug. And so all I'm saying is rethink your brain and understand what these kids are getting to face in. And all of those websites, all of these things are not helping at all. So you need to think about how you should implement new rules of guidelines or whatever you call them to protect me instead of the kids who are getting away with it, who are beating kids to death, who are picking on kids and them dying. So that's what I'm basically saying. 
Next we have Jennifer Howerton. Hi, Jennifer Howerton. I live at 10465 Cannon Lake Road. I'm the mother of a child in the district and eventually two more after that. Um, I'm going to start by quoting a friend of mine who's a librarian. And he says, it's not important that you know the answer. It's important that you know how to find the answer. So with that in mind, I do have a question for you. I'd like to know why you're cutting libraries, such as the Library at North and certified school librarians, when the research shows that libraries with certified librarians are um, heavily correlated with college readiness. And that was actually a question. <laughs> and, and we don't respond during open forum to oh, questions. I thought it was a discourse. I'm sorry. No, it's not a discourse. Okay. So you, you're free to talk to us for, for three minutes, but no, we don't respond. Okay. All right. That clears that up. Thank you. Okay. I tell you what, though, we will get to have someone get back with you with that. We do right. send responses. So Thank you, sir. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Tiffany Johnson. Hi, my name is Tiffany Johnson. I live at 5203 West 80th Terrace in Prairie Village. Um, I have two children in the district, district, one at Briarwood and one at Indian Hills, um, and I'm here as parent. Um, I may not be up here for very long, so we'll help move along, but I do have a question. Um, I'm pretty concerned with the uh, school funding formulas that are being batted around. Um, I was disheartened to see the reports in the media regarding um, Dr. Henson's meeting with um, Republicans who represent the district um, regarding um, a plan that he was putting out there for discussion. It's essentially a Missouri-style funding plan. Um, I think it's fine to discuss things, um, but I, I was very disturbed by the fact that that meeting included Republicans only. There are a number of dem Democrats in the district um, who sit on education-related committees. I'm not entirely sure why they were not included. So I was hoping to hear um, something from you about your um, views on that and why we are making school finance a partisan issue. Again, we can get back with you, but we don't, we don't, um, we don't engage in, in discussion here. This is open forum for you to come and discuss it with okay. us. Well, thank you. I would thank you. be curious to hear it and to hear it in a public forum so that it is clear what's going on in the district. Thank you. Liz Smidal. I don't have a question. Um, and I didn't know that I didn't know that Dr. Ziegler and Dr. Neal were going to speak about the work United was doing. But I was here. I was coming to give you an update because I wanted you to know about the great work that's happening. I'll skip through the successes that we've had and the meetings that we've had um, in the last couple of months and go straight to the part that you don't know yet, which is that I wanted to tell you how. Um, I'm speaking on behalf of myself and Linda. I cleared this with her, and I think also the community at large when I say that the teachers in this district are absolutely amazing. 
the teachers that have engaged with this this work, and we have one at least one from every building, and some buildings have many teachers who have been a, become a part of our core team, have come to this work with open minds and open hearts and an unbelievable spirit, and they've been willing to engage in transparent and vulnerable ways with the community, with parents, with students, and with us. And I can't describe to you how grateful and impressed I am with the staffs of the buildings in this district. And um, I'm grateful for the Dr. Ziegler and Dr. Neal's help in negotiating our path, and I'm looking forward to continuing this work. Thank you. Sarah Carmody. Good evening. My name is Sarah Carmody. I lived at 5624 Dearborn in Mission. Um, I'm here today uh, to actually speak on what the uh, first speaker was talking about and uh, the policy or poli uh, lack of policies about who is going to enter the schools and when our children are going to be detained. I've been a family law attorney for um, the last eight and a half years. I do a lot of sync work, work with KVC and DCF and uh, children who are at their most vulnerable. Schools need to be a safe place for students. The police have no place here unless they are removing a child who is creating a disturbance for another child. Unfortunately, the district here has been un untransparent is the only word I can think of right now. The, the least transparent I've ever seen Shawnee Mission School District by putting out a statement saying that no ICE or other police official entered the school or arrested a child in front of other students. This is just not accurate. A Prairie Village police officer did take a nine-year-old into custody and other children were around to see that. That's inappropriate and never should have occurred. That children is a, a human child, a citizen of this United States, and has no matter who his parents are had the right to know what was going on and not be taken into police custody as scared as that is for an adult to happen. I can't imagine it happening to a nine-year-old child. The proper response is to call a social worker, is to call KVC, is to call DCF, is to call the child's emergency contact, not to call the Prairie Village Police Department. The second proper response is to be truthful with your community and not make comments about f facts that just don't occur. Because the thing that makes me most angry, and I tell every single one of my clients this, is don't lie to me. Don't try to pass it on to me because I'm going to be able to see through it. And we can see through this. We can see through that there are five policies that apparently the district works with, but those aren't enough. Relying on sink court, which is overwhelmed and overburdened, is not appropriate action for a large school district such as Shawnee Mission to take. There are school social workers in every building in this school district. Something should have occurred in the administration before that young child was taken anywhere. I find it incredibly inappropriate, and I hope that you all are working on something in the future to make sure nothing like this ever occurs again. Jenna Stowe. 
Hi, my name is Jenna Stowe. I live at 10330 Long Street in Overland Park. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. I have two children. Um, one is uh, at Westwood View and one is at Rose Hill Elementary. Um, but based on where we live, we are represented on this board by Mrs. Zila. So as an active and concerned citizen and constituent, I would like to know if this board will be exerting any pressure on Mrs. Zila to step down from her role on the board based on recent transparency and ethics concerns. So I'm a little disturbed that you would state that there's no discourse here. Um, and I think that everyone in Mrs. Zila's district deserves response. Thank you. Erica Hoover. Good evening. My name is Erica Hoover. I live at 4508 West 74th Terrace in Prairie Village. Um, I have two children at Belinda Elementary. And I just have a question for you, which apparently won't be answered, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, when you created a new cabinet-level position for Leanne Neal, you created two new director-level positions to fill her previous position in the communications department at what I suspect is about a $200,000 salary level. Um, why did you need two people to fill the role that one person was doing? Again. And I know you're not going to answer. But you'll send a response? Is yes. that a, yes. about when should I expect I your, that? I have your address. How long does that take? I'm just curious. Um, give us to the tomorrow, the end of the week, something okay. like that soon. Thank you. How's that? Thank you. Tucker Polling. My name is Tucker Polling. I live at 3321 West 74th in Prairie Village. I do have a question. Um, my question is whether you looked at any evidence about the results of the innovative school experiment at Apache before deciding to extend that experiment to Rising Star. I mean, even on that purely data-oriented question, can you give any response? Again, we don't respond here, but we will get back with you. We have is, professionals that can get back with you about that question. Is about there that ever question. a point at which you do respond publicly? No. no. Actually, uh, we do respond to people that ask questions here at, at a later time. But this isn't really – this is – After meeting, this meeting? This is open forum. And let me remind everyone, this is our meeting open in public. And we take comments from um, from patrons, parents, students, obviously. But it's not a place for us to get back with you right now. Sometimes we have a staff member, a professional staff member, get back with you with the correct information. Um, responding right now, it, it, it's uh, it's best for us to have the professionals get back with you with the information that you're receiving, that you're, that you're wanting. Okay. Okay. Um, you mentioned that there was a time where you would respond later. Mm -hmm. So is it after this meeting? Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, so Are you, I have your address. So Go my follow-up, since you're going to respond, uh, my follow-up is why were those two schools chosen? Um, in looking at those two schools, it looks like they're both relatively um, lower-income student populations in comparison to other schools in the district. So my follow-up question um, for whenever um, that comes is, why are we experimenting with those student populations? Yeah, I'm sure we have answers for that. So 
Thank you. Okay, Karen, I'm sorry, Logia? I'm going to really, sorry, I can't tell if it's a T or an A. Uh, Logia. Thank you. I yes, right. thank you. Well, first I'd like to start. My name's Karen Logia. I live at 3509 West 101st Street in Leewood, Kansas. First, I'd like to thank Isabella and Claire, if you guys are still here. Um, thank you for your bravery and sharing your stories, which um, were obviously very difficult to do, and we need to shine light on those kinds of things to drive real change. So thank you to, to, to those two young ladies who, asked, who shared their experiences. Um, school board, my question is I would like to know more information behind the reasoning on why you authorized $10,000 stipends to Pam Lewis and Kevin Hansford in a year that they were already making $120,000 a year. So I'm asking for more background on that. Okay. Is that, is that it? All right. We'll provide that, provide that for you then. Blake Hodges. My name is Blake Hodges. I live at 8308 Rosewood Drive in Prairie Village. My children attend Briarwood Elementary. Many parents that I've spoken to are frustrated by the lack of transparency by the school board. And it seems that many important district matters are being handled by consent agenda. And so my question is just simply, why are so many district, uh, is so much of the district's business being handled by consent agenda? It's troubling because it, uh, it prevents the public from having access to your thinking and your thought processes and decision-making processes. Okay, we'll get back with you on that one. Thank you. Jim Weiner, Weiner, sorry. You'll correct me. Yes, my name is Jim Weiner. I live at 8341 Linden Lane in Prairie Village. My kids attend Briarwood Elementary. Um, I had a question regarding transparency, but it seems to have uh, come up quite often. But when I looked at the school board minutes, it came up around the boundary issues. And uh, Dr. Southwick, as he addressed, it's never a good time to do anything, but it's always necessary in some respects. And this is from me who lived through the southeast Shawnee uh, Mission Valley closing uh, prior to my kids in school, but it affected me greatly. Um, one thing I noticed on the uh, boundary proposal, the rationale for this is to address overcrowding at some schools while more effectively using other school facilities that are under capacity. That's a great rationale. It's a great reason to do it. The question I have is that uh, there seems to be an inequity across the district west to east. There seems to be a lot of concern about west, new homes. I, I finally mentioned, I heard regreening mentioned, which was fantastic because we, that was discounted completely as a rationale why we had to close schools six, seven years ago when this process went through. It was kind of dismissed as voodoo science uh, when people brought it up that I live on a street and seven houses of seven-year-olds left and now there's seven houses of young kids and the district <laughs> informed us that that was not proven out in the numbers. Their numbers were 97% accurate. The question I have is it seems with, uh, Dr. Southwick, you presented something at uh, Briarwood before the school district, you know, uh, demolished Briarwood, is the sweet spot for the school was 450 to 500 students. The question was raised at the time, Briarwood at the time had 580 students, and 580 students moved from Briarwood to Broadmoor and back to Briarwood. 
when the idea was brought up that we're moving 100 kids more than a sweet spot, said we'll take care of it. That was the problem. Uh, Dr. Hanson, I actually spoke with you at that meeting. I don't know if you remember. I, I was not given an answer, and I don't think I'll be given an answer here, but I'd love to have some follow-up. When I asked why could we not redistrict some of the kids, uh, the, the, it was given to me as that was not going to be that was not going to be considered. We wouldn't redistrict kids. The problem with Briarwood is it is way overcrowded. We have one principal, two secretaries, with schools that have similar 300 student populations. Right next to us, we have Tomahawk that has a a population of under 300 students, a capacity utilization of 55%. Next year, we're this the new school. We're going to have four grades of early childhood education. It's going to add probably 25 to 50 students. So now we're going to have 625 to 650 student pupils moving through the district or moving through that school. Based on these numbers, the numbers I got today were there's 578 students at Briarwood. We're going to add four sections of early childhood education. We have capacity at a school next to it. Briarwood has been an issue for years, and no one's done anything about it. It's, it's, it continues not to be addressed. We have an opportunity now to add it here, rip the bandit off at the same time with everyone else. The students at Briarwood are being underserved because we have too many students in a building that is brand new and fantastic, but the teachers and the principal and everyone is stretched to capacity. So I'd like to know why that's not being added, or if it is going to be added, I would love to know the answer to that. Thank you. Kristen Barnes. Hi, thank you. My name is Kristen Barnes. I live at 7617 Lichtenauer Drive. I'm a resident of Forest Park Estates, and I'm speaking on a similar topic of the boundaries. There are some considerations. I understand that it's a proposal, that it's not final, and I appreciate that you're looking for community input. And as a part of that, I would like to give my community input on um, a few main topics. One is safe passage to school. As um, she spoke about, as Dr. Hubbard spoke about, they adjusted East Antioch so that students would not have to cross 75th Street. But with the new boundaries created, they're requiring the 27 Forest Park students to cross 435 and Renner where there are no curbs or sidewalks. And we are not yet eligible for a bus because we are too close. So I would like to understand why that is considered safe passage. Um, another um, consideration that I'd like to better understand is the status of transfers. That was never uh, discussed in the presentation, and I feel that it could benefit people to understand, are students still going to be allowed to transfer in if they're existing? Will new transfers be considered? What is the status of that? There are just a few details that I think would make this presentation a little bit more meaty, for the uh, consumers that are going to be a part <coughs> of the, the transfers. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Michelle Yurgovich. Hi, my name is Michelle Yurgovich. I live at 8716 West 83rd Street in Overland Park. Um, my main concern is um, something that happened to my daughter. She attends Westridge Elementary from another school student. Um, there is a case has been child that has been filed against this student for a sexual assault offense. And prior to this being um, um, a case was filed from the CSO or the RSO of the school, SRO, I'm sorry, um, the officer was aware of three prior incidences that happened at the school prior to this case that happened to my daughter and this kid was still in the school 
and I kind of want to know why. When my daughter gets suspended for three days for sitting on her feet on the bus, but yet this child is allowed to sexually assault people during class when there's two other teachers in the classroom, what are these teachers doing to prevent things like this? Um, what is there in place to prevent future incidences? And why were the policies and procedures not followed to protect my daughter and other child children? There are several daughters of parents that this happened to. My daughter's not the only one. Um, I will send a letter of what I'm requesting to you. You can give it to our board clerk okay, and she'll pass it out you. to all of us. Uh, really, I just, uh, Westridge really needs some help with their district and their policies and putting something in place to protect our children. Thank you. Thank you. Ruth Hannon, Ruth Hannon, Ruth Hannon, does she need me to go to the next person to give her a bit of time? Okay, we'll do that. Uh, Liz Bendit. Did I say that right? Bend it. Yeah. Yep. Bend it. Don't break it. Okay. <laughs> Name is Liz Bendit. Live at 9319 Lee Court. I have two kids at Corinth Elementary. Um, realizing now that you're not going to answer, but I'll throw it out there for response at a later date. I'd love to have a follow-up on the um, report of result of the hate crimes committed at Sean Mission East back in February. And I think many people would like that to be a public response. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Do I need to still, is Ruth here? No? Okay, all right, Heather Mayfield. Hi, I'm Heather Mayfield. I live at 7322 Reeds Road. Um, I have a son at Hawker Grove Middle School and I have a son at Santa Fe Trail. Um, I'm also a teacher in another school district. And one of the things I know about being a teacher is that the evaluation process is really rigorous. Um, teachers are constantly monitored. I know in the Shawnee Mission District there's walkthroughs, informal evaluation, formal evaluation, um, and those all become a part of the teacher's record. What I'm wondering is um, at the district level, we have a lot of administrators that we know through public record are paid very, very well. Um, and my question is, is there a protocol for annual performance evaluation and review of district level administrative staff? And if so, is that made public? Does that impact um, you know, their performance? How is that evaluated? And then what's done if the evaluation comes back that things need to be worked on? That's a good question. We'll get back to you. Thank you. Thank you. Jeff Passan. Hello, my name's Jeff Passan. I live at 53, that's okay. Live at 5314 West 79th Terrace. Uh, Ms. Goodburn, I'd just like to start off by reminding you this may be your meeting and this may be an open forum, but we are your constituents. I, I understand and we, that. And we deserve answers to our questions. And, I do and the, idea that. That, the idea that they're going to be mailed to us, uh, it just does not seem sufficient when you have a room full of people here. 
I, and I and these people that? have legitimate questions about transparency. That's exactly right. Can, can, you at le- can you at least say that you will publish these answers on your website, on your Facebook page, the same place where you tried to defend what happened at Briarwood Elementary? Can you at least say that you will do that? Because that would take a huge step in terms of transparency, and I think it would assuage a lot of the people here. Um, I don't know what to, I, I don't know. <laughs> to tell you the truth, uh, I don't know right you now. You realize how ridiculous this sounds, no, right? No, it really you d- do. You do. You represent the people here, and you're not willing to put out there how you are representing them. Well, uh, I'll take it under consideration, but thank you. Please do. Okay, I'm going to tell a story now. Five years ago, my wife's son and I were living in Western Shawnee, and we wanted to go to a place that had the best reputation for community and the best (laughs) reputation for schools. We moved to the Shawnee Mission School District, Uh, and when searching for a home, we focused on the Briarwood neighborhood because we appreciated the fact that in Kansas City, a place that does not have, especially Johnson County, a place that uh, in some places does not have a whole lot of diversity, we could find that at Briarwood. One of my son's best friends is a first-generation American. They are nine years old. They are in third grade. They are friends with the kid who got taken out of the classroom, uh, who met with police, whatever the case may be. The idea that inside of schools we do not feel safe, and by we I mean parents of the kids who have to explain what's going on here. The fact that my son now knows his friend may not show up to school the next day because of the policies that are in place in this country right now and that the Shawnee Mission School District <laughs> is not stepping up. What they're doing is, is standing back and saying we have a policy in place as opposed to saying we are going to put the safety of our children first and that is our number one priority. What I'd like to know is, number one, was the policy that was set out followed? And number two, would you be willing as a board to empower whoever it may be to ask uh, whether it's Mr. Douglas or the principal or some teachers who may not have been able to help this kid, would you be willing to publicly put out a report on the incident that happened, not about the child, but about the way it was handled by Shawnee Mission School District employees? Thank you. Thank you. Stacy Stranathan? Stranathan. Hi. That was a good job with my name. It's Stacy Stranathan. I, I live at 5503 uh, West 153rd Terrace in Overland Park. Um, I want to give a quick background. I'm an attorney as well. Um, and I was also a, a foster mother uh, for seven years. So I'm well aware of child in need of care cases. Um, I'm a little disconcerted by the first statement from the uh, police chief. Uh, He said that what was reported in the media was erroneous, but he didn't really clarify that. So what is going on is it's extremely vague, and I think a lot of people have have talked about that, that things need clarified. There needs to be transparency. People need to know what really did happen here. he, his statement said was that no, no student, quote, no student was taken out of school. But there was a statement made to 
41 Action News said they reached out to the Shimishan School District spokesperson who said the police came to pick up the child after school and put him in protective custody because the parents were in ICE detention. So it does sound like law enforcement was involved in removing the child from the school, and it does sound like there are a lot of elements of truth of what the mother was saying has happened, that there were law enforcement that took a child from a place that should be a safe refuge for them. When kids go to school, like school and a church and things like that, that should be one place where they feel completely comfortable and they don't need to feel like I'm going to you know, get taken away by the police. That is scary. And I can tell you um, another statement by the, by the district's spokesperson said that they tried as hard as they could to not upset the boy. Well, that's just a fallacy. I've taken foster children, and every single time they are taken from their parents, it's upsetting. And usually, most times they're taken by, by a social worker, and kind of a calm setting, a social worker will try to make it as peaceful as possible when they take a kid, but it's still traumatizing. But can you imagine being picked up by a police officer and taken away in a police car and not knowing where your mom and dad are, and your mom and dad have probably already expressed to you their fears with the new administration saying they're going to crack down on immigration. It was probably terrifying to this kid. The mother said he's scared to go back to school. I don't blame him. And not only that, it would be traumatizing to the other students that are his friends, like they talked about, that were at the school. It's ridiculous. And I was just going to say that KCK School District and KC Mo School District have passed resolutions that that have said that that the school is not going to, it's going to be a safe place and but a spokesperson from Shiny Mission, Mission District said the district is not considering banning ICE and from pulling students out of class without a warrant. And I would say, why not make a policy? Why not make a provision saying that this school, our schools are going to be safe and our children are not going to have to worry about this happening to them? Thank you. Val Ball? Val Ball? Okay, well, we've heard about a lot of problems today. My name is Val Ball, rhymes with foul ball because sometimes I'm out of line. So I might say some things that are upsetting because I actually believe that conflict is good for all of us. And so I've been waiting to come to Shawnee Mission School Board and say I got my master's degree in why media violence affects kids' inability to resolve conflicts without violence. And besides Shawnee Mission allowing young children to have access to internet and things like that. I can't go into that now. However, um, there are great programs right here in Kansas. Um, I want to talk about the Johnson County uh, Juvenile Corrections Advisory Board. They have a school-to-prison pipeline subcommittee that Mark was on. Mark Schmidt, I believe, who's the head of your security, um, came to one meeting, and then the schools got offended that it was called the school-to-prison pipeline because there's been studies that that's a real, real thing, especially in white privileged areas such as ours. I'm going to admit it. I hope other people will, too. Um, And instead, the Johnson County Advisory Board, to try and be nice to the schools, changed it the name of the committee to the School and Justice Partnership Committee, which to me is the exact opposite of what we're trying to do. We're trying to make school a place where 
talking about the green dot and those things, they're great. Um, it's called restorative discipline. I encourage someone from the district to get involved in that subcommittee. They're in the process of gathering data and they are going to reconvene in the middle of July. You can reach out to Don Heimer at the DA's office. He's on it um, as the member of the um, person who deals with SYNC at the DA's office. So I want to bring solutions to you and say that I'm available. If anyone wants to talk about this further, if you'd like a further presentation, there's the Kansas Institute for Peace in Newton, and Wichita West has instituted some restorative discipline in their classes. Um, it's It needs to be a, a district-wide um, implementation eventually, but it can do amazing things on the school basis, in the classroom. It's a real culture change. And I think right now we have an opportunity where we're addressing conflicts of harming relationships and relationships are harmed. And these are ways that we can study to rebuild those relationships, restorative justice, victor offender mediation. It's essentially a alternative to the justice program and it's the same thing applied to school districts. So you can check out restorative justice. Oakland has, um, uh, the Oakland School District has a really good example of it. So I encourage you as school board members to educate yourself about restorative discipline and how to bring the voices of everyone together to find the best solutions. Thank you. Thank you. Ru Ruth Hannon. We missed Ruth. I don't... Did she leave? Okay. Ruth Hannon, I just want to give her one more shot. Ruth Hannon. Okay. You're done with open forum then. Thank you, everyone. Okay. We will move to E1, the approval of the minutes, special meeting of February 27, 2017. I will take a motion. So moved. Thank you, Ms. Mack. Second. Thank you, Ms. Dr. Denny. Yeah. I'm going to take just a minute until the room kind of clears. Uh, Dr. Denny, second. Yes, Ms. Mack. Okay. Is there any discussion? All those in favor, please say aye. 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 <coughs> All those opposed? Motion carries 7-0. E2, the uh, approval of the minutes of the regular meeting of February 27, 2017. Thank you, Dr. Denny. Second. Thank you, Ms. Zila. Uh, is there any, any discussion? All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All those opposed? Motion carries 7-0. Okay, adoption of the agenda, F1. Move for adoption. Thank you, Mr. Stratton. Thank you, Ms. Bisfield. Is there any discussion? All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All those opposed? Motion carries 7-0. G1, the approval of routine business by consent. So, so moved. moved. Thank you, Ms. Mack. And Second. I think Ms. I heard Ms. Neighbor. Is there any discussion? All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All those opposed? Motion carries 7-0. That moves us down to agenda to action, administrative services, and one, Dr. Henson. Dr. Neal, if you would give us an update on, <coughs> excuse me, in one, please. It's our, <coughs> our summer 2017 uh, Johnson County Parks and Rec and YMCA daycare leases. So I appreciate your work 
relation to this issue, Dr. Neal, if you could help me talk, that'd be great. Absolutely. Um, the item that's coming to you is, um, as you may know, we have two, uh, currently have two uh, daycare providers, uh, Johnson County Parks and Rec and YMCA, that um, offer extended care um, before and after care in our schools during the year. They also operate programs during the summer. So the item that you see here is simply for their summer leases. Those will go through. Um, their year leases typically end at the end of May. I don't have the date in front of me, but I think it's about May 28th. This will take them through end of July, uh, and it's they regionalize, so it's not at every site. They have limited number of sites, and they offer summer programs for parents who are interested. For the coming year, I think maybe, Dr. Henson, this is what you're um, asking for me to expand on. Uh, in talking with the YMCA on another issue, they have a grant program at Rose Hill that offers um, a wonderful opportunity for our students at Rose Hill. It's been in place, I believe, for three years. Um, we were visiting with them about continuing that, and they're writing the grant for that. It's a 21st Century Community Center learning grant. Um, we talked about um, the Jumpstart program that the district has and also talked about our early education efforts and expanding that, the exciting um, work that we talked about a little bit earlier, and talked about some of the barriers that our families face because those pre-K um, programs that we are offering are half-day programs. And we know just anecdotally from the information we received that that sometimes is a challenge for some of our families to be able for them, um, for their employers to be able to allow <coughs> them off midday um, either to uh, pick up their child and take them somewhere else or to bring their child midday. And so in talking with the Y, uh, they stepped forward as uh, a very, um, with some very exciting and willing participation around developing a wraparound care program for our early education students, our pre-K students that would help reduce that barrier, would make the price point um, very competitive. Um, that's also something that's of interest. And so in moving forward with that, we bring that to you and we're really excited about um, that partnership and their uh, interest in extending um, the programs, um, the themes and things that we're working on during the half day, extending that along with just experiential and discovery learning, providing some of those experiences for those young um, pre-K students. And so in doing that, that will um, adjust uh, some of our sites for next year. There are six sites that w have been Johnson County Parks and Rec sites um, that we will be um, shifting over to YMCA sites because we can only license one uh, provider. Um, so we couldn't have, like, the Y couldn't do the wraparound for pre-K, and then we would continue to have JCPRD there for before or after care. So I just bring that to you as a just a point of information. Um, we will look forward to bringing back to you um, information about that partnership. They're developing what that price point will be, and we'll have that information for you. But um, just this afternoon, I learned that we've already had 200-plus calls of people who are interested in our pre-K program for next year. So um, we're excited that we're expanding that, and we hope to be able to continue to expand that district-wide as we develop our plan for universal, comprehensive early childhood services for the children of this community. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Neal. Any questions? Oh, Ms. Neal. Oh, question. Sorry. Neighbor. I'm sorry, I've been asked by uh, a constituent if we have yet uh, to know who would do daycare at the new Lenexa Hills. I know it's a little premature, but I don't know if there's been any talk of who would have that. 
Well, we don't know yet. Um, certainly, uh, as we move forward and that building opened, if, if we were able to expand the pre-K program there, if all goes very well with um, the wraparound care program, we would hope to be able to extend that. Um, but we're also open, certainly, to working with Johnson County Parks and Rec on other partnerships. You know, we have um, partnered with them on the Aquatic Center. They will continue to have some before and after care. So we're always looking for partnerships. <coughs> so all I can tell you right now is the 14 sites and I think somebody asked well why are there just 14 why is it limited well that's actually expanding by about 50% in terms of location so um, we have we offer no fee programs Um, we offer some that are title funded so the qualification requirement there would be that they would have to live within a, a title, uh, school-wide title boundary. Uh, then we have no fee that are grant-funded. Um, those, there's a list of about eight or nine qualifications that families would have to meet to be able to attend those programs. And then this year, we're um, trying at a limited number, just two sites, uh, a fee-based or tuition-based program for families because we know that there are families out there that would like to take part and have quality early uh, pre-K education, but maybe don't meet those qualifications. So we were trying to design um, a cost, um, a, a really competitive, cost-competitive program uh, with a fee that just covers the bare minimum of what those fees are. And so we'll see what the um, the response is. We hope it will be great, and we hope we'll be able to continue to develop and to build for that in the future. Thank you. Any other questions? Okay. we. I need a motion. With approval of the daycare leases. Thank you, Ms. Mack. Uh, thank you. I think I heard from Ms. Bisfield. Okay, any other um, comments? No? All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All those opposed? Motion carries 7 0. Okay, and one, and sorry, and two, the approval of DECA International Conference. Dr. Henson? The 29 students from Shawnee Mission East that have qualified to attend DECA International Conference. So, again, they've qualified uh, to attend. And so that conference is April 26th through 30 in Anaheim. We have other high schools that will be attending as well, students. But remember, we have the uh, $20,000 mark. And so once they exceed $20,000, that requires board approval. So these students just qualified. And so now they're getting ready to go to uh, Anaheim. And again, we have students from other high schools, but that expenditure is under $20,000, and that's why they're not listed uh, here on the board agenda. Move for approval. Thank you, Ms. Neighbor. <clears throat> Second. Thank you, Ms. Sela. Any other comments or questions? All those in favor? Quick, quick oh, I'm sorry. Yes. The source of funds is a variety. It's not uh, a general line item. It, it drills down and talks about the source of funds on this. Yes, sir. It is uh, diverse funds. And so since they've qualified through competition, we'll use some career and tech ed funds, dollars that are designated there. Students are raising some funds on their own. And then some of them will, um, if they don't want to fundraise, they might supply some of the funds directly from, I'm assuming, a relative or a friend. Thanks for clarifying. Okay, thank you, Mr. Stratton. Okay, any other questions? Discussion? All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All those opposed? Motion carries 7 0. Okay, we move to Action Business Services, Dr. Henson P1. Thank you, Mrs. Goodburn. We have construction contract contracts tonight for bid packages. Dr. Southwick? <coughs> We're in the process of building our other buildings. Uh, we did let some contracts early along the way um, 
for services so that we can get a jump start. One of those, I'll remind each one of our new elementary schools has a storm shelter and that we have to manufacture those walls and there's a, a huge lead time for that. So we're bringing to you tonight um, an opportunity to, for us to let this bid to start to build those walls so they'll be ready this summer to be set. We hope to be able to um, get things under roof, hopefully by winters, and this is part of that process. The other part of the um, recommendation that you have tonight is actually for us to start to move dirt to get the pad site ready to go so that uh, when the walls are done and we have the final bids, then we'll be able to start that process. I'd like to remind the board on the Lenexa Hills, this is not a building where we have moved a group of students from one building to another or we built it on site. This is a new set of students with a new set of staff moving into a brand new building. And the end result of that is there's no plan B. We have to be ready to open this building in the fall as we open all of our other buildings. So we're taking advantage of some of these trades to get a jump start on uh, that will allow us to meet that course of construction so that we can open up on time. Billings are taking 16 to 18 months to build. We feel comfortable uh, with this jump start that we'll be able to bring that in on time. But again, that's why we bring that uh, to you tonight for hopefully you to pass that motion. And just a point of clarification quick, it's fall of 18 we're opening this building though, right? Because you said fall, and I just want to make sure it's fall a, of 18. Yeah, okay. Not 17. <laughs> okay, just wanted to make sure. Okay, I know that, but I just yeah. want to make sure. No. Okay. All right, is there a motion? So moved. Thank you, Dr. Denny. Second. Thank you, Ms. Sela. Is there any other discussion or questions for Dr. Southwick? All those in favor, please say aye then. Aye. 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 All those in opposed? Motion carries 7 0. Okay. P2, approval of the 16 17 last day of school. Might Thank you, Miss. A few people looking at this one. This is an <laughs> item of interest. Dr. Atha is going to join us. Dr. Atha has the task or responsibility, maybe privilege tonight. Uh, making sure that our school calendar aligns with the requirements of the state of Kansas as well. And I'm um, sure you won't jinx us tonight, Dr. Atha, but we're counting on no inclement weather. We're finished, right? And I, I don't know if we ever started this winter or not. But, I'll try uh, not to over-forecast. That would that'd be great. Thank you. Um, as you know, by board policy and negotiated agreement, we build uh, four emergency days into the school calendar, and then we adjust the end of the school year accordingly. Uh, my recommendation this evening uh, includes a little an anomaly that I would like for you to consider. But we're recommending that the last day of classes for students grades kindergarten through 11th grade be an early dismissal day for Friday, May 19. Assuming there are no unforeseen circumstances like a 12 inch snow in <laughs> April. High school final examinations will be uh, early dismissal days administered on May 17, 18, and 19. The last day for the teaching staff will also be May 19. What we're asking you for in addition to building in, adding in these uh, inclement weather days back in, we're asking you to also forgive two teacher contract days, one of which is a scheduled work day 
where the administration's uh, <coughs> expectation will be that the teachers close out their school year by finishing their grades and by closing down their classrooms like they do every year. The other contract day would be a student contact day. And uh, we, by state, uh, by state statute, we exceed the 1116 <coughs> hours significantly. So we will have enough hours um, that's uh, required by the state of Kansas. With that said, I would uh, entertain any questions. Dr. Denny. I, 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 this suggestion presupposes that the teachers will, in fact, on the 19th, have cleaned out the rooms and prepared to, for the year end, as you described, uh, that they should on that. Yeah, the expectation is the same as we have, have always have for our teachers okay. professionally, that they close out their school year as they always do. But this is just to recognize their hard work and, and our students' hard work as well. So moved. Second. Thank you, Ms. Mack. Thank you, Ms. Sela. Mm -hmm. Any further discussion? All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All those opposed? Motion carries 7-0. Thank you. Okay, we move to P3. The approval of the renewal of youth sports medicine and athletic training services agreement with the University of Kansas Hospital. Mr. Kramer, thanks for being with us tonight. You have a couple of agenda items here, and um, please explain uh, this item to us, please. Okay. Uh, we currently use KU Med for our athletic training, and we I'm recommending tonight <laughs> that we renew our youth sports medicine and athletic training services agreement with the University of Kansas. Hospital at the total price of $48,500 a year, and this expenditure is being paid out through the general fund. This agreement is for five years, July 1, 2017 through May 31, 2022, and will include athletic training services for all our high schools and will add an addition to middle school services. So that's the one big change of the contract. We'll now have middle school services at the middle schools. So remind you, we currently have a contract uh, with the University of Kansas Hospital uh, for our high schools. It expands our services to our middle schools. And so and it is a five-year contract um, with the University of Kansas Hospital. Move approval. Second. <coughs> Thank you, Ms. Bisfield. Thank you, Ms. Neighbor. Is there any other discussion by board members? No. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All those opposed? Motion carries 7-0. Thank you. And we have then P4, RFP 16049, Athletic Uniforms and Accessories. Mr. Kramer. It is with great pleasure that I bring the following recommendation to the board, which is on the cutting edge of high school athletics. It's an exclusive apparel contract with Nil Brothers and Under Armour Athletic Wear. <coughs> uh, an RFP was issued earlier in the year to five vendors. Uh, two responded, Nil Brothers and BSN Sports. On February 13th, both, uh, both vendors were interviewed by the committee, by a committee, uh, with Nil Brothers receiving the recommendation. The five-year agreement includes the following stipulations. In year one, the district will be guaranteed $75,000 uh, for free goods <coughs> of Under Armour wear and an accelerated clause for additional monies. The district will also receive a 10% of total purchases of free goods back 
for all the money that has been spended, uh, that has been spent. Uh, that includes PTSA, PTA, booster clubs, school clubs, and organizations, youth sports, and district activities and sponsors that uh, purchase uh, equipment and, and uh, wear. Year two, uh, we'll receive $40,000 guaranteed money up front of free apparel with the same amenities as year one. Year three through five, the district will receive an additional 35000 of guaranteed monies for free apparel, along with all the amenities of year one and two. Included also in this agreement, no brothers will print and color logos on 1,000 pieces of free goods each year for our schools. Uh, they could also be used as a fundraiser. Uh, they will provide custom banners for all our middle schools and high schools so that we can start branding our schools. Um, it will also include a 6% rebate on anything that is not under armor that will go back to schools uh, for their budget to, to repurpose. Um, the district high schools and middle schools will be available to use all online player and spirit wear packs uh, towards under armor total for this agreement for free goods. And finally, Neil Brothers has agreed to retroactively use the 16-17 school year as a rebate for all our schools for anything that was purchased as Under Armour. Included in this also would be free apparel for coaches and teams that win a league championship, a regional championship, and a state championship. So it's really, um, it's a unique and innovative and creative opportunity to allow monies to be received not only at the district level but also at the building level of each of our buildings that includes elementary, middle, and high school. This new arrangement will allow us to brand our school and our school district. Uh, we'll provide discount pricing at Under Armour for all our uniforms uh, and equipment and receive reward monies for all our purchases. Uh, this contract would run from July 1, 2017 through June 30th, 2022. Entertain any questions. Thank you, um, Sila. Yes. <laughs> This is amazing. I mean, this is wonderful about all the, the athletic apparel that we're going to be able to get for our schools, but I've never heard it at the K-12 level. At the university level, I'm familiar with that. But we're, we're one of a very handful of schools across the country that have a program of this type of incentive. There's lots of incentive programs out there that <coughs> provide 10% back or some monies up front, but for us, uh, guaranteed it's going to be roughly $220,000 over five years of free apparel <laughs> that we can use to brand our staffs, our buildings, our coaches, and administrators, and support staff, too. Custodians, kitchen, secretaries, all can be used to brand and provide Under Armour wear for our school and schools. That's amazing. Ms. As many of us, we've been involved with our schools, booster clubs, et cetera. I'm rereading. I've read that paragraph several times. Does that mean, uh, my, my question is, are booster clubs, clubs, et cetera, must they use Under Armour if they have a suitable product? No. Uh, if they do, if they decide to do Under Armour, then they would, they would uh, have the opportunity to get that rebate. And then that booster club could decide what they want to do with that rebate, whether to put it back into their product or to give it to <coughs> organizations inside that school. Thank you for that clarification. Mr. Stratton. That may have answered my question, but um, in my one or two courses in contract law, I don't remember the term convenience contract. 
So is that what that means, that it's not an obligation, but it's, right. it's, a, it's a convenience or an offer that they Booster can clubs, take? PTSAs, those other groups do not have to participate. But if they do, they would, they would get that rebate if they purchased Under Armour or anything from Nil Brothers, they would get a 6% rebate back. Okay, so no obligation, it's all up to the individual or team yes. or district to make these The only choices. thing that would be required would be our school teams would have to be in Under Armour uniforms. Mm -hmm. okay. With the exception of a couple. There was a couple there exceptions. There was a few. Uh, swimming Under Armour doesn't make a swimsuit. Uh, varsity Sports has always done cheerleading, so we left cheerleading. They would use their current vendor, Varsity Sports, for most of their purchases. Thanks. Any other questions? Ms. Seal? Well, I would just move approval. Ms. Seal? Second. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Busfield. Any other uh, discussion? All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All those opposed? Motion carries 7 0. Thank you. Would you like me to do the one last one or just come back up? Just come back up, please. Thank you. Stay in order. Okay, we move to P5, which is the approval of purchase Cisco wireless equipment and network switching, not to exceed $2 million for elementary schools. Mr. Lane, would you address this, please? I will. This is a plant expenditure out of capital outlay. This one's a little bit different. Uh, we always plan to look ahead for data infrastructure <coughs> to make sure that uh, we have switching equipment that is both adequate for capacity, functionality, those types of things, also meet security needs. The thing that's a little bit different about this one is you notice it says up to $2 million. That was the budget amount we have. When we planned for this about three years ago, we knew this was coming, but at that time, E-rate had not yet fully modernized to the point where they would allow districts of our size to, or of, of our status, our reimbursement rate, to apply for what's called Category 2 funding. We can apply for that Category 2 funding now. So assuming that we receive funding back on that, about 60% of the dollars we spend on these switches could come back to us. We've just gone through a process of, of a couple of different appeals with E-rate, those types of things. The modernization thing has been somewhat problematic for USAC and their interpretation of the FCC's orders and rules. We did prevail in, in a couple of our uh, appeals. We did not prevail in one of our Category 2 appeals. So the dollars back from E-rate are by no means a guarantee, but it does mean we shouldn't try for them. So that's kind of the, the complexities of this particular request we have in front of you. Again, this is a this is a planned capital outlay expenditure. It was something we'd been looking forward to for about two and a half, three years now. But I just want to make sure the board understood that there is potential we could get E-rate dollars back on this, but it's nothing guaranteed. Thank you. So move. Thank you, Dr. Denny. Second. Thank you, Ms. Sela. Is there any... Um, any more further comments or questions? Okay. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All those opposed? Motion carries 7-0. Thank you. Welcome. Okay. We move to P6, which is SR32717B LED video display. Shawnee Mission South. Mr. Kramer. I'm back. Um, as you all know, we're building a unbelievable complex at Shawnee Mission South, renovating the stadium, and with that includes a new school board. So in conjunction with the Executive Director of Facilities, I would like to recommend approving the purchase of the LED video display from Dextronics at the Shawnee Mission South District Stadium. And uh, this purchase comes with a five-year warranty package. The total price of the purchase is $241,248. It will be paid through capital outlay funds and advertising revenue. Uh, 
Shauna Samuel, Director of Communications, and I, along with Dectronics Sport Marketing, will be working to secure the sponsors for the advertising revenue. The goal is to raise the revenue to purchase the video component part of the new scoreboard. Uh, this is a common practice among school districts that have scoreboards with video capabilities. Uh, this purchase reflects the terms and conditions and pricing of the AEPA government contract through Greenbush Cooperative Program, which satisfies the bidding requirements allowed by the KSA 726760. Any questions? Yes, Just Mr. one Chairman. minute to clarify that we're going to be able to do, I'll, I'll call it, a live reproduction on the screen. Yes. I think at graduation specifically. Yes, we'll be able to use this for all the events that are used in the stadium, graduation included. So you could see the students walk across the stage on the video board. All right. Thanks. And yes. I assume, Mr. Kramer, also, I mean, this is for South with all the stadium renovation and stuff. Will we, uh, down the road at some point in time, do one at, at the north areas? The goal would be is once we get this one done and the revenue comes in, excuse me, then north would be online. Right. Okay. And then as that turns into a revenue producing, then we would look at maybe expanding into other areas. <coughs> Snack. Just real quick, we have a, we've had a lot of student broadcasters doing yeah. things, et cetera. Will they be involved? With yeah, I think this is one of the neat yeah. things about this is that we'll be able to, to tie this into the rigor and relevance, and we'll be looking at those radio and television students to be the ones that actually work the board. They'll be given the training through Dectronics along with their teacher as they'll participate. So each school that has a home game would be responsible for that board and to run the advertisement, the PSA, or any other announcements that would be provided by that school. So it really ties in nicely to the, to the instructional component, what we're trying to do. Can I make a clarification? Um, and, and this is probably for the audience as much as anything. This, the scoreboard, uh, as we look and worked with um, Mr. Kramer and Mr. Robinson, and this is a, actually a process that both he and I have been involved in in, in the different districts. The district is going to fund what the cost of a normal scorewood would be, and that's our portion of that. The remainder, and that's around between probably somewhere between forty-five and fifty thousand dollars. So, if we were going to go put a new, and they don't really do analog anymore, but if we're going to put a new scoreboard minus the video component, that's what it would cost the district, and, uh, and that's what we plan for in our budgeting. Um, the remainder of that will be sold in advertisings. It'll be a long-range plan for advertising for businesses that are here and support the school district. Um, we've got a, a pretty, well, I think, a very conservative time to, um, to sell those, but I will tell you that in a previous life, it took about 14 days to sell the advertising, and I think with Mr. Robinson, it was about 21 days. So we believe very quickly um, with the marketing plan that we have and, and Ms. Samuel's help that we'll sell that. We will come back to you and report to you how those are going. And um, in addition to North, we're also considering what our scoring board would look like for the new aquatic center and have a plan to do the same thing there. So just want to clarify uh, we're paying for the basic piece of that stadium renovation. The upgrade, we feel very strongly, will come from people that want to advertise there at, on that board for a long period of time. So, so moved. Thank you, Ms. Mack. Second. Thank you, Mr. Stratton. Um, any discussion? 
All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All those opposed? Motion carries 7 0. Okay, we move to P7, which is the approval of construction contract kitchen addition at East Antioch. Dr. Southwick, I'll ask you to address this issue. Uh, Dr. Southwick and I were at East Antioch today observing the, the lunch process. Uh, this is a much, much needed change. So if you would explain this to us, please, sir. Yeah, this is uh, an item that we've been looking at over the last, um, actually started last school year, but when we started the discussion, we did not have enough time to uh, look at design and also look at pricing and then go through the bidding process so that we can get work done um, in the summertime to be able to open up a new kitchen at East Antioch um, in the fall of 17. Uh, so this process was in delay a little bit, um, but we were committed um, in the district as a part of our plan to update our kitchens across the district, and we've done that starting um, the summer, actually, before the, the bond issue. We started working on that. But because this particular kitchen was not a part of the original plan, uh, dollars are being budgeted out of our capital dollars that we have to do this project. But um, the kitchen situation that we have in terms of serving line and preparation and place for kids to sit would not meet the standard that we have in other schools. So we worked um, over a period of time. We put this process together. We've taken bids, and we would ask that you approve the uh, low bidder of Dean Construction at $1,282,000 so that we'll have a nice, new, shiny, bright serving kitchen for all of our students and staff at East Antioch Elementary. I move approval. Thank you, Ms. Bisfield. Second. Thank you, Ms. Neighbor. Any discussion? All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All those opposed? Motion carries 7 0. Okay, with that, we move to board comments. Um, oh, Ms. Mack, go ahead. Well, I wanted to um, talk about Samantha Burris, who's a Shawnee Mission Northwest senior, and she is a Sunflower League Bowler of the Year for the Sunflower League, and we're very, very proud of her. Um, one other thing I wanted to say is um, I, w I was at Trail Ridge today, and they have the chains of kindness, and we were talking about um, that earlier. It was really wonderful to see all the different things that the kids had put on there, and it goes right through the middle of the school. It was quite something to see that um, in person. And finally, I wanted to talk about what's happening at Broken Arrow. Um, many of you know that there's a volunteer organization called Caring for Kids, and it is faith-based, but it is also except people uh, uh, that are not um, faith-oriented. It's a it's a volunteer organization when, where anybody can volunteer for the school, and they're doing a very unique thing for Broken Arrow. Now it's great the teachers are getting out on May 19th, but the group, the Caring for Kids team at Broken Arrow, is going to have a you can make it till the end of the school year week for their staff at Broken Arrow, and each day they're going to provide a special treat. So I think that's really wonderful for our community volunteers to understand how hard our employees work every single day to make sure kids are safe, to make sure that they're learning. And I think it's a wonderful idea for the community come, to come together on its own and support our school. So I want to say thank you again to Caring for Kids for all of the wonderful things you do in so many of our buildings. 
Ms. Beck? I had a, a comment, a couple comments. I'm really looking forward to Crestview tomorrow night, the opening of Crestview. Looking forward to that. Um, I also wanted to um, state that Mr. Stratton and Ms. Zila and myself, we went to the NSBA conference. We just actually got back this afternoon, the convention that was held in Denver. We joined school board members from all across um, the country, including there was somebody in my one of my sessions from Canada, actually, too, and uh, delegations from Blue Valley, Olathe, um, school board members from all over uh, this area, the state, and the, the country. Um, they provided a wonderful program, wonderful uh, professional development opportunity for us board members as well. Attended a variety of sessions o over the um, two days that we were there on Saturday and Sunday. And um, uh, I attended uh, uh, really some great sessions on uh, the effects of poverty on children in school districts and on board governance and um, a, a variety of topics that I know Mr. Stratton and Ms. Sela can also attest. We will um, bring these things to you all. Um, we have lots of handouts. They also have they've gone kind of paperless too. So it's going to take us just a bit to go through and download all these things for you. But um, we're really excited to do that. There was just a, a number of fantastic um, sessions, um, and we attended. We divided and conquered, and attended as many as we can, uh, as we could over the weekend. But we we really look forward to bringing you all that information. So it was just a fabulous experience, and so grateful that um, we're able to also do, just like our teachers do, a professional develop, development opportunities for our board. So, Mr. Stratton, do you want to go, Mr. Stratton? Sure, I'll go ahead. Okay. Um, <clears throat> there was a lot of opportunity for us to uh, learn, and uh, what I would take, I'll share that I spent quite a bit of time in board governance uh, as well, um, and then communications. Um, hearing the folks that spoke with us today, um, we're, we're visiting those very items that they were talking about. Um, I sat in several legal update uh, sessions where they talked about as specific as this ICE question to a variety of others that all other states are, are also addressing. It was extremely helpful. Um, the communications part is, is so vast, and someone was raising questions about the communications today as well. Um, it was really helpful to learn from the legal experts, the communications experts, and just our fellow board members around the country that um, shared examples. I took pages and pages of notes. We've got all kinds of documents. We're going to share them with you as the board. We're going to share them with Dr. Hinson so he can distribute them to the staff. Lots of lots of good ideas. Um, I took away from that experience as I'm uh, traveling home, and I, I took away from it and said, we always have room for improvement. And whether it's the folks that shared some of those ideas today, as well as all of those that I saw in the meetings. And I couldn't help but think that we're going to be in a new building, and I look at that as an improvement. And so we've kind of got a new room for the improvement to take place. And uh, so that's going to be the mantra that I'll take with it, is that we always have room for improvement, and, I, and we're going to start the next step in our new room. Um, so I appreciate the opportunity to do it. And... Uh, very good dialogue. I guess the last part I'll share is, you know, we're not compensated to do this. We carve out a weekend. Uh, it was time really well spent. I'm a huge basketball fan, so it was not a good weekend to go away for something like this, but uh, it was well worth it for our role as the elected board. Right. And again, I will echo the professional development. That's one of our SMART goals as board members, to get out there and see what's out there. I think the sharing with other uh, school board members, superintendents, there was even some principals mm -hmm. in some meetings that I was in, um, is, is invaluable. A, to tell you, you are doing some, we are doing 
some stuff very, very well. B, there's some great ideas out there that we'd not thought about yet and um, hopefully can incorporate into what we're doing. Um, I will say, too, um, we fund the board members to attend this conference through gift grants and donations. This is not coming out of the classroom. And I spoke with a lot of other boards around the country and they said, oh yeah, this is our classroom dollars, you know, but it's it's worth it. And I, I agree, it probably is worth it, but that is always a nice, I think, um, fun fact to get out there to, to people that are wondering exactly how that's funded. Uh, we had some great keynote speakers, astronaut Scott Kelly, um, talked about doing the hard stuff. You know, and it's failure's okay, but man, if you didn't try to do what's hard for you, then you've probably failed just in that regard there. So, but there was community engagement, personal assessments actually of board members and our roles and how we deal with the superintendent and, and the community. So I think there was some really great stuff there. I attended a Ruby Payne session, which is on poverty, and uh, that's a growing need and a concern. and and to understand a mindset. And I know we're doing a lot of that stuff in the district and I'm, I'm very proud that we are because it's a difficult nut to crack, if you will. But um, uh, let's see what else we, oh, they had a lot of other things just on growth of board members, I think. Um, uh, we had the, the effects of social media. It's everywhere for us right now. So we need to understand um, how that impact is and how to use it well to communicate our message out there. Transparency, we heard that a lot tonight. We try to be as transparent as we can and that was a common theme throughout community engagement and stuff is to try to try to be transparent with our community because we need the support of our community for great schools, we just do. Um, also, there was a great one there. I mean, some were really better than others and some were just took you by the lapels and, and really um, made a huge impression. One that I went to was how to deal with negative people and keep from becoming negative yourself. And you know what? I think that's probably good for everybody on the planet to realize that. You know, you can't change people that are just negative, but you can choose to how you react to them and how much you're around them. So um, there was always great stuff. And as far as all the handouts that we got, on the app, which is a free app for NSBA, you can go, all of those, there's like... Um, an icon on there that you can pull up every PDF, every handout. Mm -hmm. So we can give you, of course, what we were there, we can recommend that, but there's a lot of other information there that's at your fingertips and you can print that out yourself if something that, that we touched upon sounds great to you because if we give you our notes, it's kind of what we took in and how we process what we heard, but you can go and look at the handouts of a variety of different workshops there. It was it was tough. We sat there trying to pare it down so we could divide and conquer and at least, you know, hit three of those um, sessions during each of those session times, and it was, it was very beneficial, I think. But I think we're all pretty tired today, so it's been great. Thank you. If I'd you. have had uh, Hermione's time turner, it would have been Yes, I know. That Can would we really work. Actually, yeah. I got to three different things in one session. It was like, oh, we got this one covered, and I went to the next room, and mm -hmm. I said, oh, no, I don't know about this speaker, and I wound up in another one about poverty in our district, so it was great. Thank you all for giving yeah. up your weekend and going. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Any other comments? Okay, Dr. Denny. I move that the Board of Education recess to executive session in order to discuss personnel matters regarding non-elected personnel, to consult with our attorney on matters deemed privileged in the attorney-client relationship, 
to discuss matters relating to employer-employee negotiations and to discuss matters relating to actions adversely or favorably affecting a student. The meeting will reconvene at 1035, and no further business will be conducted following the executive session. Second. Thank you, Ms. Bisfield. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All those opposed? Motion carries 7-0. Thank you. Thank you all.